This week, Last Week on Earth is brought to you by Audible.com. Drunken Santas terrorize Manhattan. Is Ron Paul racist? Lesbian sailors make out. Iraq and churros both explode. Biden says the Taliban's not our enemy and confuses everyone. I talk life, childhood, comedy, haters, Louie, meeting heroes, and more with my guest Dane Cook. And then Dane and I review everything that happened during the last year on Earth. All during the last week on Earth with Bendley. Into an age of unreason. Oh my god, guys, listen up. I have an announcement to make. Did you guys know that I'm like the number one Google search last week? It could be the stuff of history, however, one way or the other. Okay, is Jessica Simpson here yet? And to those critics who are so pessimistic about our economy, I say, don't be economic girly man. told me a triangle has five sides and i'm getting this figured out and i'm trying to narrow it down i don't have it figured out yet i don't believe them i think they're trying to pull me in like a jewish star direction or ninja star angle i don't know exactly but i feel like they have less than five sides uh this is last week on earth with ben glebe i'm ben glebe thank you for tuning in again this is our fifth episode time flies when you are covering the news of the entire planet um, so, you know, things happen. Our podcast today is brought to you by the holidays. We pretend to be all about family just to sell you stuff. And, uh, the podcast is on smodcast.com. Um, so, uh, please check out that website for all the other great podcasts on Kevin Smith's network. And also one apology. I said I would post the articles from last week's show on my blog. I did not do that. I don't know if anybody wants me to do that. If you do, let me know because I'm not going to do it if you don't because it's a pain in the ass. It would be a lot of work. So if you don't want me to do that, then I would rather not waste my time. I have better things to be doing. So let me know if you want it. Then I'll do it. Then, you know, whatever. Um, quick tease for next week, if I may. My guest on Last Week on Earth, next week on Earth, will be Star of One Tree Hill, the lovely and talented, and I would say a little bit feisty, Sophia Bush will be my guest. Um, and we're running a contest between this week and next week um, where she is actually sponsoring a charity that I support as well called Fuck Cancer. That is the name of the charity. And right now, Mozilla Firefox is holding a contest to give $25,000 bonus donation to whatever charity raises the most money before January 11th. So there are a lot of huge celebrities that are, that are sponsoring different charities, and Sophia Bush is the representative for Fuck Cancer. So to get more money donated... Um, between now and next week when she's my guest, for every $250, the total goes up between now and next week's episode. Sophia will answer a dirty question from you guys, from me. She'll answer a dirty question for every 250 bucks. So get creative and get donating. Uh, you want to go to crowdrise.com 
slash give to F cancer. Give number two F cancer. And I will tweet that uh, URL out as well. You can donate right there and you can send tweets of, of dirty questions that, that uh, Ms. Sophia Bush will answer at Ben Glee with the hashtag last week on earth fuck cancer. So last week on earth fuck cancer is the hashtag. Send me dirty questions and donate at crowdrise.com slash give the number two F cancer and we will uh, get dirty next week. But this week on last week on earth, my guest joining me to chat a little bit later is it's, a, it's an amazing guest. I'm very, very excited to have him here uh, as my guest today. The world famous, the hysterically funny record breaking arena touring comedian. He's won every award and accolade in comedy and also has become quite an accomplished movie actor as of late. My good friend, Mr. Dane Cook will be joining me in a little bit. Um, after he and I chat for a bit, which will be extended today because there's a lot I want to ask him, a lot I want to get into, and uh, then we'll take some questions from Twitter as well for Dane. We'll do the Thunder Round, which this week, this is exciting, will be a recap of everything that happened during the last year on Earth. A full recap of 2011 in the year of our Lord. I don't even know if the Lord approved that message, but I'm going with that. That's how our calendar is based, so I'm just running with that. Um, you can leave me questions or comments at Ben Glebe, and if they're worthwhile, you may hear them here next week in this exact part of the show. Um, a lot happened last week, so let's jump right into it. There is a deadline looming in the Georgia Powerball Lottery. $77 million was won by somebody who bought a lottery ticket, and they have not claimed it. The 180-day window is closing. My first thought when I heard this is how fucking dumb do you have to be to have the winning lottery ticket life-changing event and not know it how dumb of a human being do you have to be and then my second thought was i was just in georgia did i buy a lottery ticket when i was really perhaps stoned or drunk one night in georgia did i buy a lottery ticket so i spent the next 20 minutes searching my apartment for lottery tickets i did not find one and then convinced myself i did not buy one um, so hopefully I didn't. Our podcast today is also brought to you by a real sponsor with a building and offices and employees. Audible.com is sponsoring us. If you want a free audiobook and a free 14 day trial, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash last week and sign up. 85,000 books to choose from. You get a free one. So just do it to be nice. Audiblepodcast.com slash last week. Um, some big news this last week. I don't even know how to describe it. It's frightening. Drunken Santas terrorized lower Manhattan during SantaCon. This is true, everybody. Thousands of drunken Santas terrorized lower Manhattan when they flooded into the neighborhood for SantaCon earlier this month. Openly flouting public drinking and urination laws. Peeing and drinking everywhere. Now, that is not very Santa-like, first of all. We all know Santa... We know his behavior. He doesn't pee in the middle of the street. That's not what Santa Claus do. Okay? And, uh, a Seaport Civic Center committee, the, the, the committee, which plans to send an angry letter to Mayor Michael Bloomberg, is saying that they're upset there was not enough law enforcement during SantaCon. The committee said that the NYPD devoted more resources to Occupy Wall Street than to SantaCon. And you gotta stop the fucking Santa Claus. They're on the rise. You know, Occupy Wall Street, they have a mission. They're trying to change society. Santas are just peeing and breaking bottles everywhere. you got to prioritize where the danger is, and that's in St. Nick. 
Um, residents saw unruly Santas buying six packs of beer. Isn't the worst unruly Santas? Although, if, if think about it from this perspective. If Santa does exist, this is the only logical explanation how he gets all the gifts everywhere. There's thousands of Santas. And before the big day, all those Santas want to get a little plastered. They want to get fucked up. Okay? Why do we have to teach our kids Santa's real? I never understood that either. Why do we have to delude our children and lie to them into thinking these mystical creatures, the Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, Santa's real? And they have to have some day where they realize, A, they've been lied to by their parents, B, none of their heroes exist? Why can't we just let them believe in real-life make-believe heroes like Justin Bieber or Mariah Carey or the Jonas Bros? You know? That's a fantasy we can all get behind. Not these fat dudes in suits that come shoving themselves down your chimney. In a second grade classroom, a teacher got in trouble this last week for telling her students, and when it came up in conversation, Santa does not exist. Big trouble. How dare you tell facts to our students? We do not want you praying in school. We do want you, though, admiring fat men who fly around the earth to every house in one night. Well, not every house. They pass over Jewish homes and Muslim homes. You know, I'm Jewish. That hurts my feelings. Muslims probably don't care. They would probably, they, you know, they would probably look at it as an honor. Might declare, you know, radical Muslims would declare jihad on Santa Claus. Nice, normal Muslims might want a gift or two. We're not going to leave pork out for Santa, though. It's against Jewish and Muslim traditions. And also Santa, he's eating enough pork, let's be honest. He's eating plenty of fucking pork. Um... I would like to play an audio clip for you guys now, if I could. Um, it's a little uh, holiday video I did with ComedyJuice.com. I went with hidden cameras as Santa Claus, dressed as Santa Claus. I truly believe I am Santa Claus in my mind. And um, this is a clip of me talking to a couple Muslim girls, and then a random lady, and then a, a postman. Um, me as Santa Claus, them as regular people. Do they believe I'm Santa? I hope so. Do you two celebrate Christmas? No. Uh, you don't? You're misleading me. <laughs> we do believe in Jesus Christ. You do? You believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, not as a Lord, but as a prophet. Well, Lord and Savior is key for the free gifts. <laughs> I think a big part of it is that people have lost the true meaning of Christmas. Do you know the true meaning of Christmas? Um, family love. No, it's things. <laughs> we both... Enjoy a little bourbon. No, no, not me. You don't. You ever tripped hardcore on some peyote or mushrooms? No. Never. I like women. I chase women. You chase women. <laughs> you and I are quite similar then. <laughs> have you ever made love to a small dwarf woman who usually makes toys for you? No, have you? <laughs> I think I don't even need to answer that, do I? Yeah, that's shocking news for everybody. I'm Santa Claus. Um... Is Ron Paul racist? Big story this last week. Is Ron Paul racist, everybody? You see, it seems that the guy who's finally now surging, the one that we all said had integrity, that we all said stood by his ideals, in the late 80s and early 90s, printed these newsletters under his name. Under his name. One was called the Ron Paul Political Report. One was called Ron Paul's Freedom Project. And they had very racist, inflammatory statements in them. One of them that he didn't write, but again, his name on the document said, and I quote, I think we can safely assume that 95% of the black males in D.C. are semi-criminal or entirely criminal. 
I mean, that is obviously an overstatement, Mr. Paul. And your name is in the beginning of your publication. It's Ron Paul's Political Report. Well, your name is in the first part. You got to take responsibility for everything. My name is in the second part of the name of this podcast. I take responsibility for nothing. But Ron Paul, your name is in, your name is the header, bro. So, and then one that he actually did write himself and doesn't deny having written in an, in '96 to a in a uh, paper written in Dallas. He said, referring to African Americans, they're unbelievably fleet of foot. If you try to catch someone who has stolen a purse from you, there's no chance to catch them. He didn't deny that. He just said, oh, you got to read the whole context of it. I was saying nice things about how fast black people are. Now, part of that one I can defend. I've said before, it's nothing wrong giving people compliments. Same time, you're certainly castigating an entire race of people for your little newsletter that you made a lot of money off of. Did you make money off of it? Do you disavow these documents? What do you say about it? He walked out of a CNN interview questioning him on these very principles. Let me play you that soundbite. Gloria Borger questioning him on these newsletters and his response. Some of the things contained in them were conspiracy theories. Some of them, some of them are considered racist and you've, you know, you've disavowed them, um, completely. But they were called the Ron Paul report. And did you read them at all when they were when they were published during those years? Did you ever sort of take a look at it and say, you know what, this isn't what I stand for? Not all the time. But you did read them. Not all the time. Well, well, on occasion, yes. And did you ever object when you read them? Well, you know, we we talked about this twice yesterday. Has CNN have? Why don't you go back and look at what I said yesterday on CNN and what I've said for twenty some years? Is twenty two years ago? I didn't write them. I disavow them. That's it. But you made money off of them. Long pause. Long pause. Because, yes, he did. They say he made up to a million dollars off of those newsletters. And he says, did you read them? Not all the time. Yeah. Just I kind of sometimes skim the Ron Paul newsletter, being Ron Paul myself. I read everything with my name on it. I get Google alerts. I check my Twitter like 800 times a day. You're telling me Ron Paul weekly newsletter did not read his own newsletter. Hard to believe, sir. Hard to believe. And I'm a Ron Paul fan, you know? I think he's one of the most reasonable of the Republicans, yet apparently very cool with racism. So you know how far the Republican Party needs to climb back when their main guy full of integrity is very racist. It's very strange. He has to deal with that. Um, the only thing that gave us a little bit of solace this week in the news is thanks to the repealing of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we got hot lesbian kissing. Two lesbian sailors, one sailor and her other sailor girlfriend from the Navy who was on the port waiting for her as her naval ship docked. They, it's a long-standing Navy tradition that one couple draws, you buy $1 lottery tickets and one couple gets to do the first kiss ceremonially in front of everybody, take pictures, all this cool stuff. And Ron Paul, uh, Ron Paul, Ron Paul's in my brain. His newsletters, they permeate your brain. Not Ron Paul, the lesbian woman. Some lesbians look like Ron Paul. I think it's maybe where I, my mind confused itself, but um, they're not. Anyway, the, the two women, the one woman who's lesbian got her name pulled in, in the raffle and got to kiss her lesbian girlfriend waiting at the shore. And great news is they were both pretty hot. I mean, I think it's wonderful for gay rights, for human rights that this is allowed now. But I think a brilliant, if it was on purpose, they pulled her name. A brilliant PR move on behalf of the military because if you want people to be okay with gays in the military, 
let it be hot lesbian gays on the surface because everybody likes it. It you know gets your your situation riled up, and you're all of a sudden a lot cooler with gay men kissing each other and whatever it is that they want to do um, in the privacy of their own door. But let's let the lesbian the hot naval girls kiss each other. It's a great move for humanity. That's what I believe. Um, Petty Officer Second Class Marissa Gaeta of California was the one who descended from the USS Oak Hill after 80 days away at sea and shared a sexy, sexy kiss in the rain with her partner, Petty Officer Third Class Sitlalik Snell of Los Angeles. Her name is Sitlalik Snell, but she's hotter than that, I promise. There's nothing really hotter than two girls kissing, in my opinion. It's like, it's, it's like birds chirping or, uh, two, popsicles melting in the snow in front of each other on you know in a melted in a hot melt way bombings in iraq that was a tough story this week we finally put all of our troops out we reported that last week on last week and at least 16 blasts went off across baghdad in a string of coordinated attacks just days after our troops left if it was me and i was living in iraq my first plan would be get the fuck out of iraq Get out now. Random explosions for 10 years in this country. When your country explodes randomly, you get out. If you can't get out, at least move to the outskirts, live in a tree, do something to get away from the randomly exploding cafes, all right? Bakeries, grocery stores were all targeted. It was a well-coordinated attack by Sunni militants linked to al-Qaeda. That, that, that is what it appears to be. And... uh Part of it might be to show us that our withdrawing troops is not going to be leaving Iraq in a very solid, stable place. And part of it, though, we wonder if it's going to create Iraq, create conditions in Iraq that are going to create a resurgence of the Shiite, Sunni, sectarian violence that pushed the country to the brink of civil war in 2006, 2007. Which is, brings up a very interesting question. How do we run these multi-billion dollar wars? We've been in Iraq for how long now? Eight years? billions and billions and billions of dollars, thousands of lives lost, our own troops, 50 to 100,000 Iraqi civilians, and we don't even know if it did anything. We literally don't know if it had any effect of any discernible kind. Then what's the point? We're just there for war games in real-life situations? It's very expensive, and shit's blowing up. You know what's blowing up this week? Churros! Exploding churros in Santiago, Chile. Chile's Supreme Court ordered a newspaper to pay 125 grand to 13 people who suffered burns while trying out a published recipe for churros. If you don't know what churros are, get your head out of your ass. They're delicious. Churros, man, those long sugary sticks, fried sugary sticks you buy in street corners when you're fucked up in Mexico. Churros. You know what churros are. Dough fried in hot oil that apparently sometimes explodes on people. The judges determined the newspaper did not fully test the recipe. People followed it exactly, and if they did, the churros had a good chance of exploding. Now, I like a churro as much as the next guy, maybe more. Not so much that I want exploding churro chunks on my face. I like my face as is, non-churro explosion. So, that was a shocking story. Made you want to move to Brazil, didn't it? It didn't? That's weird. I do, because their economy is booming. 
That's right, our next news story from this last week. Brazil overtook Britain's economy as the world's sixth largest. Isn't that amazing? The sixth largest economy in the world, Brazil. I mean, their waxing must have become very popular. Worldwide, man. I feel like pretty much everywhere on the planet they're going Brazilian wax. Maybe with the exception of Arab countries. Because I'm assuming if you aren't allowed to show your mouth in public, you probably aren't bears an empty cereal bowl down there, you know what I'm saying? Probably got a little rough and tumble up in the tumbleweeds, you know what I'm saying? A little a little uh scrub brush you gotta weed whack your way through. If you're curious what the top five economies above Brazil are, US number one, China two, Japan three, Germany four, France number five. I don't even think France's economy is that great probably. They're just brilliant at marketing. French people do putting their name on fucking everything. You ever see French people putting their name on every French kiss, French bread, French braid, French dip, French tip, French windows, French toast, friendship bracelets. That's French, right? They had to rename kissing, really? The way everybody kisses when they're really feeling it? That's French. They fucking copyrighted that shit. Before French people, nobody thought... I'm going to put my tongue in her mouth. I'm going to rub my tongue around in her mouth and see what happens, huh? Why not we just try? They didn't invent that shit. They got to rename toast? Are you telling me people in France never have regular toast? What happens in France? They put a piece of toast in a toaster. When it pops up, what happens? That's also French toast. When you make it sweet, it's French toast number two. What does Americans have? What do us Americans have with our name on it? What do we got? We got cheese and Indians. That's all we got. What do Italians have? Dressing and murder. And then Vice President Joe Biden, funny Joe, said something that caused quite a stir this week. He said in an interview with Newsweek, the Taliban per se is not our enemy. Um, yeah, they are. That's the whole reason we're in Afghanistan is to defeat the Taliban. Our vice president should know that, right? He said, no, no, no. Aren't they the people we overthrew in Afghanistan and are still fighting there now? It's strange our vice president saying our enemy is not our enemy because this confuses us. It makes us think we don't know what we're doing over there, which clearly we don't. Um, but if you remember, Biden was the one who didn't even want to raise our troop levels in Afghanistan. He argued to Obama when they were deciding if they were going to raise troops or not. He said, uh, there's less than a hundred Al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan, most are in Pakistan, which we're taking out with these drones. Why are we raising troop levels? And just Obama did it anyway, because it seemed like the right thing to do. Generals wanted more dudes, more manpower. They said, let's do that shit. If there are really only 50 to 100 members of Al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan, our enemies, not the Taliban. Here's how we capture them, okay? They're stuck in the hills, right? They're hiding in the hills in the northern area of Afghanistan. Take all of our troops, make a giant circle around the hills, have them hold hands, slowly walk forward, close that circle in, third grade, rainy day, multi-purpose room, gym style, until you feel the guys in the middle, and then you got them. Just don't understand why we're involved in this crazy occupation of Afghanistan. We've created, now the Taliban didn't have a real bone to pick with us, Al-Qaeda did, but not the Taliban generally, now we're their number one enemy. We're their number one enemy now. 
one of the higher ups in the Taliban, the guy that used to be the charge d'affaires, the charge d'affaires, the French word again, branding, in Saudi Arabia for the Taliban from Afghanistan, he was there at the embassy there, said regarding the invasion, we became enemies. I quote, we became enemies because of an external factor, Osama bin Laden, who was not an Afghan. He was a pain in our side as well. Now he's gone, and the Taliban have little or nothing to do with al-Qaeda. That is a suspect phrase, however, little or nothing to do. Which is it? Because if you have nothing to do with al-Qaeda, you get a, you get a free pass. If you have little to do with al-Qaeda, that is a gulf of a difference. That serial killer lives next door. I have little to do with him. Where the fuck is he then? Just that little bit. Tell us what you know about that little bit of serial killer whereabouts. It's tough, man. It's tough to figure it out. At least we have gay coffee. What? Yeah, we do. Gay coffee made its big debut this week. Williamsburg, Massachusetts. This new coffee company came out with five brand new blends that make up a new gay brand. Bringing gay culture further into the main, into the main, I can't even say it, mainstream. Their roasts are called Red Hanky Roast, which makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Second Date, that one's sexy. Weekend Pass sounds kind of dirty for a coffee if you ask me. I support this coffee's right to exist and to be served to people, gay and straight. Weekend Pass sounds a little friendly to me. Good Morning Mary, that one's hot. And a medium roast called Stone Butch Breakfast Blend. Not my cup of tea or cup of coffee, but hey, to each their own. Payroll tax told you last week the Republicans were trying to not extend the two-month extension of the payroll tax holiday for middle-class Americans. They wouldn't have to have an increase of 2% in their taxes when they're so anti-tax. They said, we'll do it only if we get our gas pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline from Canada sucking oil all the way to Texas. We get that approved. Then we'll do it. Obama said, I will veto if that happens. Well, some compromise was reached. House Majority Leader John Boehner said, I'm sorry, House Speaker John Boehner, Republican, of course, said we will not do it even though the Senate passed overwhelmingly bipartisanly, like 89 or 91 out of 100 votes, we're going to pass the extension. He said, no, still not going to do it. We just don't want anything to work smooth. But then Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, Republican, of course, also, Republicans are in the minority in the Senate, said, yo, Boehner, back down on this, all right? So he backed down, admitted publicly, this may not have been politically the smartest thing in the world to do. I predict Boehner will no longer be Speaker of the House, come next elections. He's weak. He picks fights for no fucking reason. He's on the way out. Um, but it's signed. Obama signed it. And he's very excited because now he gets to go on his Hawaiian vacation. He's been waiting for it. It's going to be 17 days. Now it's only a 10-day vacation. He said in a statement, this is an approximate quote. I'm very excited that they signed. It was the right thing to do for the American people and for myself to get a little tanner. I get a little Danny Tanner, if you will, with my family in paradise while everybody struggles. Catch some golf out there? Let's say it's an approximate quote. I can't promise you that's exact. What do you think James Bond thinks of these politicians? Well, actor Daniel Craig this week told Men's Journal that politicians, I quote, are shitheads. 
who will turn around and stab you in the fucking back. Touche, Mr. Bond. Touche. One more story before we bring on our special guest for the podcast today, Mr. Dane Cook. Dane Cook coming on in one minute. I'll take this time to let you know once again that our, I really appreciate the sponsorship of our, of our sponsor. That's what sponsors do. They sponsor, they sponsor ships usually during the maritime part of the world. Um, our sponsor is Audible, the maritime part of the world. Ignore that statement. It didn't mean, mean anything to anybody. Audible.com is sponsoring our show. And if you want a free audio book, you get it to keep it for, forever. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash last week. You get to download a free book, free 14 day subscription. Also yours to keep right now. I downloaded recently the daily show with John Stewart's book, earth, a visitor's guide to the human race read by the whole daily show crew. And for some reason, Sigourney Weaver playing an alien. So that confused me, but it was, it was kind of delightful to listen to in my ears. Um, go to audiblepodcast.com slash week slash last week and, um, download your favorite book and listen and support our podcast. We keep getting sponsors. Okay. Thank you. Now the time has arrived to introduce our guest, the man of the hour. Um, he of course is, he's the only guest we have here. I'm very excited to introduce the studio, a man who's probably the most record-breaking comedian in modern history. Since Steve Martin, he's the first comedian to get in the top 10 on the Billboard charts, hit number four in the Billboard charts twice. Hit number four twice in the Billboard 200 charts. In 2005, his album Retaliation was certified double platinum. If he was a rapper, he'd probably get like uber big rims and golden teeth for that achievement alone. Um, isolated incident his last comedy special debuted at number one on the billboard top independent chart and billboard comedy chart please welcome to last week on earth mr dane cook hey ben <laughs> what's going on i listened to the uh, show and uh, i think you should start over <laughs> just delete it I will. This is a dry run. Now you're now you're loose. Absolutely. I think it's time to go back to the drawing board. Even this interview will be just it's a test run. Steve Martin will be here in an hour now. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thanks Good for to coming be here. In. Thank you for having me on your. Uh, what is this? Your uh, fourth, fifth, fifth. It's my quintuple. Yeah. Show. That's what they call it. Yeah. Isn't it? Well, thanks for having me here for the launch. Uh, <laughs> it means a lot to me start. to be batting fifth in your yeah, lineup. <laughs> just slightly after the cleanup hitter. <laughs> and who was last week? Uh, last week was Greg Proops. Oh. Smartest man in the world. Great. Says, he says that about himself. Yeah. So there's no way to really gauge it. Yeah. Um, how's your year been, man? This year's ending. Yes. No, it's just beginning. It's only yeah, I'm off to a just, late, late start. <laughs> you gotta get. I have a lot in. to do, man. I you have a, three days. I have a few days to uh, achieve something this year that I can put on the uh, put on the in the scrapbook. I That's guess. a good movie premise right there. One man has one year to live in three days. It's <laughs> an idea. Yeah, no, I took a lot of a big chunk of time off after our uh, tour. Yeah, for those who don't know, Dane invited myself to join uh, join himself and Al Delbeni and Jay Chris Newberg on a on a North American arena tour, six yep. weeks at the end of last year. 
uh, October through December. Yep. It was, it was the, uh, who's still going to be in the business five years from now tour. Exactly. <laughs> Just the four of us. <laughs> but that was a great time. That was an amazing time. But it man. ended in February officially. You did the last show at the Super Bowl? Yes. Which I had done three years prior. Which is, was kind of like my tradition to end each of my tours down at this big kind of Super Bowl. And it, plus it's an excuse to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> uh, and then I, I, you know, I put the mic down for a little bit, man. You have not done stand-up since February. I have not officially told jokes or I don't, not, I don't tell jokes actually. I've realized re- recently I'm not a, I, I'm a, um, I'm a humorist. Hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a comic by the sense of, uh, set up punch and, uh, you know, kind of whatever that standard of like old school traditional comedy is. I think I'm more of a humorist because I was reading about like Steve Martin's and Bill Cosby's and there is a difference. There's people that, uh, observe by collecting information and then come up with funny quips and that's being a, a comic and then a humorist is somebody and a comic also, um, talks about things that are kind of whimsical and spontaneous and not of themselves. And then humorist will talk about stories and things that, you know, happen to them. Well, you've kind of evolved to that though, wouldn't you say? Cause just, just now just by right changing now. the name <laughs> <laughs> from this point forward, you're no longer a yeah. stand up comedian. In five minutes, I'm going to be a modernist actually, <laughs> which is <laughs> a person that only talks about jokes, uh, of the current technology. Exact moment. Other yes. than that, to, I'll do jokes about MacBook Air this year, and when they come out with a new model next year, it'll be jokes about that specific technology. Sure. But I mean, that, that kind of evolved because I would say Harmful of Swallowed was a, was in some ways a pretty traditional setup punch album. It was definitely still acted out stories, but it was bits and premises about, you know, punching bees in the face. And yes. Punching every bee in the face. But that did also happen to me. That happened to you? <laughs> you punched hundreds of bees in the face? I was face? attacked by a swarm of bees, and I remember feeling like I needed to punch them specifically in the face to get them from not attacking me but no harmful really was like an unexpected turn in my career because i thought i was just i did that at the uh houston laugh stop at the time and they had uh they they had a dat uh recorder that was already wired in the room it was dat fan just recording there in the back of the room horrible joke whatever you just (laughs) said can we can you dump that is there a dump switch no there's no we're not editing any of this oh boy um (laughs) <laughs> no, so I was recording the back and just happened to get the set, set recorder and that became listen, your album. This is your ship to go down with. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to know the truth. I want to know behind the Dane. Uh, behind the Dane. Behind the Dane. Uh, Danger. No, that that was uh, yeah, that was so that was a turning point because I didn't realize that when I was recording that that all that that was ten years of miscellaneous, you know thoughts and and that was a quilt of comedy that i had sewn together that harmful was it was really just kind of a patchwork of different silly and some of it was observational some of it was like the nostalgic stuff my five sisters growing up right some of it was just absurdist humor and irreverent or you know uh downright vulgar you know it was just kind of like this mishmash is that the is that the yeah, way you say mish, mishmash? some say mishmash mishmash but you can say mishmash mash totally. up yeah, mash up is a new way to say that like a less nebbishy way to say that <laughs> a mishmash it's not like hip-hop lingo got it is that this is the part where you're funny i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that was what i was going for. i love it bed <laughs> I like what we do. You see what we it's do? A, it's great. You and I are like an old married couple. Yeah, I like, uh, you know, I think that if we continue to do this, people know it's like, it's like grinding halt comedy. That's us. Yeah. Just everything stops. Yeah, it's like, it's grinding halt humorism. It, and I mean, I'm a grinding halt humorist. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Absolutely. But no, harmful. So I did harmful. And then, it, but through the success of harmful made me realize what I wanted to hone and focus on and what I thought kind of stunk and what I wasn't into and what I thought was my strengths and what I should build. And off. so what did you realize off of that? Because it seemed like the whole album was like that. Hit. I had great hair and yeah. I should really just work on that. Yeah. No. So I've been trying to explain to you for years. I do have great hair. Don't just I go up there and shake your hair around like a banshee. When, when people talk about haters, mm-hmm. you're talking about people that are balding. Oh yeah. Yeah. People that don't like me are going bald. Yeah. Do you ever even like read the subtext and their quotes? It's like, this guy sucks. And then you feel it. Hair. He's so yeah. much hair. Oh no, they'll mention it. He's got a mane like a stallion, right. but. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What did I realize? I realized that I enjoyed physical humor and I, I was a, kind of a, uh, naturally energetic person from, from my parents and the kind of the environment I grew up in and their brand of, uh, of humor. But I also realized that I, I enjoyed language and I wanted to focus less on, um, shtick and more on, uh, you know, creating stories that were were then visual to your imagination instead of right. like I have to act out right now that I'm in a coal mine, right? Which means that I, you know, and then it, then it's like that thing of like, do I need props? And I don't want to go that you know direction. Which Steve Martin did. He did. He was prop heavy. Yeah, I admired Steve Martin, but I also. I just like to travel light. <laughs> I, that's probably it. I like carry on and yeah. I never like to check a bag. I think that's why Carrot Top is, has such great muscles these days, carrying his, those trunks around. God, he got pretty jacked, right? He's jacked up, dude. I saw a picture of him about a year ago. I'm like, he, you know what he reminded me of? Remember the, the, the second version of the Hulk when they tried to reboot it for the second time and yeah. the Hulk dogs came out and they were all like, Frighteningly jacked up, yeah. and like veins on veins. That's Carrot what, Top was an orange hog dog. You're saying? Do we call him Carrot? What's the deal? You I like to, to, yeah. He, you know, he should come out. With, he should come out with an audio CD. That would be the worst possible <laughs> translation of his comedy. <laughs> it's a shoehorn. <laughs> Just not. There's water dripping out of it. <laughs> it's a well horn for shoes. It would be he should try that they really push you know he, he could become a humorist too and just push the experimentalness the experimental that is nature. a very successful man it right is there. yeah let's give him uh credit where credit is due i think he works in vegas still right he, he does a billion dollars a week would you ever want to do that make a billion dollars a week and work in vegas i i would like to do something in vegas you know i've done shows down yeah. there one-offs as sure. they say on the inside yeah, yeah. uh i call them one and dones one and done yeah it's uh, like i never i never get invited back um, I think I would like to do something down there. I, I, I've got a, a, something in mind that I'm kind of, I'm formulating a plot right now. I'm in the, I'm in the comedy lab of my mind and trying to figure out something I could do that would be, um, you know, kind of like ve- perfect for Vegas, but not, not as like a being housed in Vegas, just, you know, doing a run down there to be right, able like to say, an, yeah. I did a big time show for a, a few weeks or something in Vegas. Like an Elden John run, you sell out the Coliseum for a couple months and then, you're out. You're not living there. I'd like be gay for George those Wallace. few weeks. I would live as Elton. <laughs> you would hold tiny dancers close to you. Uh, it, just something to be able to, maybe something in that rat pack vein. You know, we've, we've done that. Yeah. You know, that's kind of part of what I, I do with my tours. And, um, so I, I would definitely like to do something down there that I think is, um, hearkening back to like old school comedy, but with a modern, uh, twist to it using technology you know me i'm like a tech yeah i'm like you know look at the bus that we had it had like laser beams coming out of it and bus uh, the bus was amazing we had wi-fi everywhere several plasma screens we had xbox we had flip down 
DVD monitors everywhere. It was nice. Yeah. It was a nice way to live. It really was. <laughs> For six weeks, I lived the good life. Yeah, that was a good time. Then came back to my one-bedroom apartment in Hollywood and cried myself to sleep for months after that. No, we had a great time. Those shows were incredible, and, and then most of us were single, so that was kind of mm-hmm. nice. That was a lot of fun. On the tour, to be able to you know partake in some of the uh, annuities. Yeah, the annuities. I like that. Yeah, some of the... <laughs> the, the amenities and the annuities. Yeah, some of the female sundries that were... <laughs> wow. That's a great way to phrase that, where it I know, sounds respectable. I know a lot of packing technology uh, terms. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say we uh, spent a little time cavorting with the packing peanuts of the world. Very good. In a yeah. In a fe- the female ones. Half of your audience just totally tapped out right there. <laughs> Half your audience just literally walked away from their computer or wherever they listened to. And yeah, it was torture for Al Del Benny seeing us three single guys, you, me, and Jay Chris, being yes. able to enjoy our lives. Yeah, that's why I never opened Al's little bunk curtain because you knew he was <laughs> masturbating violently in there. Oh yeah. With pictures of his wife, respectfully. Obviously. All over the place. Yes. yes. And that's why you want to get violence to protect her. Yeah. No, no. From intruders <laughs> from the outside. <laughs> okay, somebody tries to steal one of those photos. Exactly. <laughs> at knife point. I mean, you, for those of you who don't know, at the end of each tour day, it was called Dane Cook Live. The tour really had a Vegasy feel, kind of. And the end of each show, you would do a musical encore with you and Aldo Benny. And then you'd call Jay Chris and I up on stage. Yes. And we would end with doing like four-part harmonies. Jay Chris would play guitar with me, Al would throw a harmony, and you would rap sometimes. I would sometimes rap. Yep. Jay Chris uh, would also, he was also in charge of adjusting your your earpiece microphone, <laughs> which is, I'm sure, the highlight of his professional career. He loved doing that. Oh, yeah. He always gave me like that Bon Jovi roadie pat on the back, like, you're good. <laughs> and he gave me like a little thumbs up. He, he was excited. Me, he told me that your ear was the warmest place to him in this world. <laughs> I always, I always put a couple of bucks back there. I just tape a couple of, yeah, I duke him a, a little tip and. Do you remember one night we were doing the show in Canada and everybody in the crowd started throwing money on the stage? Yes. Everybody threw like Loonies one and two dollar loony coins. Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed this. I think there's a video of it on YouTube. Somebody uploaded it. While you called us up there, before we started singing our encore song, I can clearly be seen picking up a lot of that money and putting it in my pockets. <laughs> Is that really on YouTube? Oh, yeah. Everything's on YouTube. Yeah. My high school graduation is on YouTube. Really? Yeah. There goes my big box office weekend opening. (laughs) (laughs) You get to really spring that on people. Were you proud of your work at your high school graduation? Oh, it was great. Again, great hair. (laughs) Oh, my God. My hair is just, it's like a sunset. Beautiful. So somebody asked me on Twitter, when will you come out with another album? It has been three years already since you've had a new fully original album come out. What What is the... When are you thinking about it? I'm thinking about doing Dane Cook live from my kitchen. And basically it would just be me and a passerby that yeah. I bring in. Yeah. And I just talk to for an hour. I talk about all my, uh, you know, uh, life experiences. Sure. And then, uh, in a humorous fashion. It, yes. Cause I'm a humorist. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm a modernist. <laughs> right. Am I right though? Cause a humorist, right? Do you know that you, 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 you're a student of the game. I mean, yeah. there is a difference between a comic and a humorist and sure. I mean, a satirist and all of it. Yeah. But you, I actually disagree. I think that you sometimes see yourself as more of a storyteller and a humorist and not so much these days as like a traditional stand-up. I disagree. I think so many – there's plenty of very successful comedians who tell stories who are still comedians or still consider themselves traditional stamp comics. I mean Bill Cosby, is he a stamp comic or or is he a humorist? Um, well, he's a, he's a stand-up comedian, but I guess uh, he tells the slowest stories an, in the world. I guess it's under the you know the banner of stand-up comedy, and then you would 
there would be subsections. That's fair enough. Subdivision humorous. Why but are you getting mad at me? Because you're a comedian, <laughs> damn it. You are one of the I reasons- know I'm a comedian, but there is a, in, in the category of comedy, I'm, I would be considered Oh, well, that's fair. Subdividing, I'll allow that, Dan, yeah. but I don't want you taking yourself away from the moniker of stand-up comedian. I'm not taking myself away from it. I was simply coming up with a subdividing. Okay, yes. that's fine. Like, it's like, that's fine. You're just like bookending. They yeah. want your dog earring one corner. This, this, this interview is turning into balderdash at this point. <laughs> People are trying to open up a thesaurus. I call and- bullshit on the whole sentence. <laughs> But, you know, the reason why I'm defending that is because you actually – I told you this before, but you were one of the reasons I became a stand-up comedian. That's true. And a humorist. And today I end it all. <laughs> Put down the gun, please. <laughs> what have I started? Yeah. I was in college, and I was a huge fan of My brother, Ron, actually introduced me to your comedy. Yep. And I was in college, and Harmful Swall made me laugh harder than anything I'd ever heard. You and George Carlin, they made me laugh harder than any other comedian I've ever seen. And – I remember I was always real ambitious with what I was trying to accomplish with my comedy. And I even had a TV show in college. And I was actually, for my fraternity, for Sigma Chi, I was trying to get you to come perform at a Rush event. Mm-hmm. You were already like doing Letterman several times. And you already had your Comedy Central special come out. Right. but you So you couldn't do it, actually. But one morning, I get a crank phone call. And it's this guy on the phone saying, how many bowls of special case cereal do you eat in a typical week? <laughs> And I was like, ah, uh, zero? And you're like, if you said seven or more, you'd want a Caribbean vacation. And I was like, what? And you said, this is Dane Cook. I'm just messing with you. I appreciate you so much trying to get me for your gig. I'm actually doing Letterman in New York that day, so I can't do your Rush event. But thank you for trying to get me to do it. And I thought it was incredible that you had called my, my, my apartment in college. Yep. And I've stalked you ever since, and now we are very close friends. <laughs> I used to call a lot of people back. Oh, oh really? I, was, I wasn't the only one. I was pretty, it was pretty hardcore. If you emailed me a question, like there was a good chunky, you know, as a comic, there's like a lot of free time, yeah. especially when you're, I mean, you're at a level now where it's like you, you're, you keep pretty busy and you're either doing TV appearances or you're like those, those years of just like waiting for the gig at night, but you still don't have to work a day job mm-hmm. where you're like, you know, just kind of, you know, you're scraping by. There's so many hours where you're just like, I'm languishing. I'm, you know, and I would just return emails all day. Yeah. I you, mean, I would, re- but I would call people. If people put their phone number randomly, I call them. And you change. I'd be the- like, listen, I don't have time to type you the whole email. I'm just going <laughs> to, I thought I'd give you a buzz. If you can dictate it to yourself right now. Yeah. Write this down. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but, you really changed the game though. I mean, you use MySpace heavily. You became, a lot of people knew you for a while as the MySpace comedian. You, sure. you leveraged that social media, that social network to, Expand and build this enormous fan base. You got to two million friends on MySpace. Right. Beat everybody to one million and two million. And you really changed the game. Like in some ways, I don't know if you see it this way, but I think you kind of created the, the shift in, in the consciousness of what people see entertainers as. And in some ways, maybe helped inspire what led to Facebook and Twitter and all that. I definitely deserve an award <laughs> that says that right on the side. Not engraved. bad. Right? Not bad. <laughs> Where is that ceremony? Right. Um, you know what? I would say uh, to a partial response to that would be I realized that that this was going to be a hub in a place where, especially like you know, college kids and you know the next generation coming up are going to be getting a lot of their information from this. Even though I don't think a lot of at that time a lot of comics that I was talking to I remember were just didn't quite get it and right. didn't, didn't understand what, how that, how imperative it was to find your, 
you know, few fans and then introduce them to each other. Uh, you know, my dad used to always say nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. Mm. And that was what I was trying to do. It was like, all right, if I get a few thousand people that go to my website regularly, that was in my mind. It's like, if I can get 5,000 people to just like be regular, uh, that might pay my rent for the rest of my life. Like, you know, not that I wasn't thinking bigger picture, but sure. you can't think big picture unless you think about each every individual piece that you need to create the big picture you need you know so did you have that big goal did you from the very beginning say i want to become one of the most successful comedians on earth or did you just think i know i can become probably very successful but i just care about five thousand people i'll tell you what i that was the no i was i had the wherewithal to know okay i'm not going to have everything at once but if you get the first five thousand maybe the rest of it is in the in the game plan um Yes, I did dream about the upper echelon highest, you know, I'm an astronaut going to the moon possibility because I had no other dreams. I had no other belief in myself. I I was a social misfit. I had so much insecurity that why not just dream you could be the best at something? When you're really realistically fucking bad at life <laughs> why not commit at least to having your dreams be awesome yeah so i would my dreams were amazing and i would uh you know steve martin when i was 15 i've told this story um, countless times but my sister kelly saw him in madison square garden and i went that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go i'm gonna do madison square garden someday wow there was n- if i didn't dream that i would have been literally just self-loathing like i did when i was younger and dealing with horrible anxiety and panic disorders and you name it. So it was like, I did, uh, I did, you know, if you believe in kind of willpower and, and, you know, the secret and all that stuff that people say, like, if you put that positive energy out, because my back was against the wall and I had nothing else to believe, maybe I did want that to come to fruition. But when I was old enough to finally realize it, okay, if you're going to have great success, you need small successes. Then that's when the right. beginning of the internet stuff changed. But I don't understand. Where did all of that feeling of being your back against the wall come from? Where did your all this dysfunction and personality disorders, as you call them, come from? Like you were telling me yesterday, I, I saw actually on your Facebook, you posted a picture yesterday of yourself at 13. Yeah. Leaning up alongside your house. And you told me that. Oh, you, sexy, right? Sexy uh, little legs. Look no, at I mean, you were hot. I think sexy has <laughs> got a broad, a broad term. I use for broads only. Um, but um, you wrote a comment there that you thought it was so incredible because back then you only had one or two friends in your life yeah. outside your family. And now 20,000 friends like that picture. Yeah. It you was, kind of marvel that moment. Where did all that come from? You seem like such a confident person right now that everybody knows and sees on stage in the middle of arenas yes. in the round. Where did, where did, why were you that guy that didn't have that confidence? I think there is something about uh, performance that allows you to reveal and absorb things that – not to get so esoteric about it, but I, I just – I look at that picture of me now and I go, geez, I seemed like a pretty well put together kid. I'm kind of standing confidently. I'm not like you know sad and sulking, but I just had uh, – self-image issues um and so yeah I, I i had no ability to connect with people i mean i just it's so weird but to post the photo up and then my sister was with me and then like 20 minutes later i'm like yeah twenty thousand people like this kid nobody liked this kid i wish i could go back and be like someday you'll get uh many likes on uh on this thing called facebook and <laughs> you won't understand you'd have been a billionaire <laughs> did you um, think though 
Do you think that would have helped? Do you think that would have helped you get out of that? I wouldn't change a thing, man. You know, now I wouldn't change a thing. There were many years where you're like, oh shit, if I could go back and just give myself the, you know, the right info. But no, I'm happy where I'm at in my life. Uh, I've had, you know, I've taken the blows and I've had the, um, I don't mean I got my dick sucked. Uh, <laughs> I've taken, I've taken it hits on the chin. Well, that, that even sounds kind of, that sounds I don't like dirty. facials either. I mean, this is, how do you uh, say you've never had your dick sucked? Because you're, <laughs> you're, you're an adult male and I believe you deserve some. Um, well, thank you, Ben. You're welcome. I'm going to make it happen. It was so heartfelt. Yeah, for sure. Uh, where'd we go? I don't know. No, but you, so, I mean, let's talk about that, that for a second because, you talk about the the blows you've taken in a non-sexual way. You start as this kid who didn't I'm have a lot I'm saying I wouldn't friends. change a thing. Right. But let me ask you then how – you wouldn't change a thing, which I think is a, a very interesting thing to hear you say. Except the beginning of this show. <laughs> you were half out of the room texting. The I beginning. had to leave. <laughs> when is Steve Martin going to hear? Soon? Is he almost here? Um you say you wouldn't change a thing, which I find interesting because you have had to endure a lot of difficulty in the last few years of your life. True. And I mean, so tell me first, you were this kid that didn't have a lot of friends, and then you grew up and started to have a lot of confidence, started to perform on stage and build this big fan base. Is Gwyneth Paltrow's head in this box, by the way? It is. What What's is this? in the box? What is this? I don't even know what that is. I don't like it. You shouldn't have water. a random closed box in front of me on the. I don't know what. It's on, boxed what? water. Great. Okay. Have one. No, I'm good. You sure? I'm good. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Magical. Your, I interrupted your poignant question. That's Go ahead. Right. Um, it's my logo. Is that right my there. parting gift right there? This is your, you take the whole box of water. Uh, with thank you. you so I'm much. assuming you can do that. They don't, I don't own this box. Properly hydrated. Thank you. You really do. Absolutely. So you then started to gain this big fan base, and then a backlash started. Can you tell me? Are you able to pinpoint where you able? You you're first starting to experience some degree of haters coming out, even within the comedy community. Um, I think when I first went to New York and I was there around 95, six, seven, I was still dealing with a lot of, um, kind of personal anxieties. Uh, but I was pretty confident on stage. And uh, so I would go to these clubs in New York. I would go to the comedy cellar and I would go to, you know, um, the Boston comedy club and stand up in New York and stuff. And, and I kind of just, I'd roll in, I'd do my thing on stage and which, you know, I really wanted to um, have uh, growth in every set. So I was always trying something new and I was always trying to, you know, push myself into just being random and funnier and sillier. You know, I wasn't, I'm certainly not political. I wasn't trying to change the world. I was like, just how can I be like, forget your life funny for these, f- you know, few minutes. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, get the room whipped up pretty good. And, uh, and then I just leave. I'd come off stage and like they were still, you know, cheering by the time I hit the door. And, you know, I've talked about this somewhat, you know, as years have gone by with the guys that were kind of in and around that time, you know, Voss and, and Norton. And there was like a whole, you know, David Tell and all these guys. And I think that maybe I rubbed them the wrong way because they thought, oh, who's this cocky douche who just comes in, uh, you know, tries to kill and then and then he's too good to even hang out with us or something. Or why did you bolt out? Why didn't you go and talk to these dudes? I, I didn't have, I didn't have that. Um, I didn't have the confidence, but were they unfriendly to you ever? That kind of made you feel like, Ooh, or cause my experience with no. comedians is they've always been very friendly. I mean, I've, I've had confidence issues, but you think comedians are friendly. Nice. I have a different experience. I mean, you, you came up in Boston, New York. I'm sure it's a lot grittier and kind of, 
more rough and tumble guys in LA. It's kind of all headshot dudes a little bit. It's people are like, Hey, yeah. what's going on? What yeah. I? It is a little phony out here to where everybody kind of, you know, because the second you walk away, you should hear the shit we say about your headshot. <laughs> <laughs> this I eyes blurry. Headshot, sure. Um, I wouldn't say that they were unfriendly to me. I, I don't think I was, uh, I don't think I was open and available for it. So I think that it was probably a bit of a mutual thing. There were guys that I would just, you know, make a, just go, you know, kind of walk right past to right. to get out of there, and uh, and so you know you don't need to do that too many times before somebody's just not even going to give you a hey what's up. Right. So then it it became you know I would show up at the clubs and and uh, I didn't feel like I was in a click. Mm-hmm. You know I was clickless. Do you think though some of it came from because I think that part of it maybe is from the some of that negative vibe started in like the alternative comedy scene where some oh, guys, they, they never liked me. <clears throat> they right. hated me for why do you one. think that is? Because just immediate. I don't know. I don't know. It was weird because I felt more like them in the sense of like, right. You know, all comic it, it's different now. Alt comedy is mainstream success. Right. Alt comedy is like a nerd in 1980 who is now the billionaire Silicon Valley guys. So right, right. anytime somebody's like, Oh, the alt, it's like, no, no, no. Alt is, you know, it's a, uh, it's a genre of, you know, successful, uh, marketing and, you know, it's like the punk rock of the late seventies. It wasn't, you know, there was a lot of people making a lot of money off looking like we don't care. Right. And so that's alt now, but back, back when it was really like off the grid alt, um, they, that's kind of the places I wanted to be in because I felt like I, I grew up kind of, um, you know, I, I was an outcast. I was an outcast and I kind of like, I, I enjoyed that whole, you know, whatever the D and D world. <laughs> yeah. You label yourself as a nerd. I, You're always gaming and yeah, but no, back then you know, I collected the comic books and like, I just, I knew that I was, uh, that I had a lot in common with them and they all felt, uh, and a lot of those old guys, I think at that time felt very like, um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the marquee looking, uh, comedian. You know, there's something off about me and I don't fit in. They thought that about themselves. They thought that about themselves. And I, and I felt that way. I, I didn't think, uh, you know, I grew to, I grew into confidence in a way that I wanted to be like kind of fashionable. And, right. and as I got a bit older and in comedy, I was like, oh, I, I, I want to be a little bit more like, uh, you know, the guys I admire, I want to emulate the Eddie Murphy's or priors. I want to be cool. There were guys that could be cool. I wasn't Dangerfield. Right. Who was going to be like silly and there was going to be something very, uh, you know, kind of oafish. And, right. and, you know, some guys play into that and that, that's great. But I knew that wasn't going to be my, my forte. So I didn't really have a spot. You know, the alt guys right away didn't accept me in because I think, I don't know, maybe because I had a, 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 a too cool a jacket when I walked into the club that right. first night. I had a guest jacket. I remember it was like <laughs> white leather or, you know, it was just so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a white leather guest jacket. Um, but do you think that's because they didn't feel like they could ever pull that off? Like they wish they could be that cool guy too and take that turn. Like I was, Murphy I was, Meyer? I was, I was having very strong sets mm-hmm. with alt-ish material. Right. Okay? So it was like, how is he going to come in and hang out in these little, you know, spots, our little coffee house or Catch Rising Star or whatever it was, and come in and, no, it's it's not supposed to hit like that. So I was I was doing that kind of, you know, alty kind of thing, right. sound effects and, 
you know, talking to people like I knew them in the audience and throwing myself off and just doing stuff that was experimental stuff. Yeah. A little bit more experimental. I also loved, you know, Annie Kaufman yeah. and people like that. So I was, I, I just wanted to, um, take, take a lot of risks up there. And I, th- I think that I felt like I f- didn't fall into a, a category for a good number of years, like 96 to 2000 were pretty lonely and pretty, uh, you know, just a lot of soul searching and feeling like, oh man, this is going to be a long run. But like I, I've said for a long time, I think that there really isn't even a significant difference between mainstream comedy and alt comedy. Like to me, it's the same exact jokes, but in an alt room, they're said slower with glasses on and a beard and, and a beard and like skinny jeans. Yeah. That's the only difference. <laughs> That's the only difference. The same jokes. Like I, I play both rooms sometimes with the same jokes and I just up my energy a bit and read the energy of the room to at yeah. the improv. Well, it's because you have no integrity. That's exactly right. I just want to please the crowd. Yeah, exactly. You're false. Like I just go to whatever people say and Andy, <laughs> Andy Kindler wouldn't approve that of me. But like God he, rest his soul. <laughs> but like he's been a critic of, of yours. Too. No, really. God needs to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> he said that you're a slave to killing. He said the same thing about you. He said that he felt that you can't grow as a comedian. He told me that one time, if you're such a slave to killing. Yeah. He saw you that way. Maybe that's just because you were killing. Is it because – do you think you have that tendency to need to adjust to please the crowd? Or do you think that's just your style that ends up pleasing the crowd because you're able to use more tools to get there? Oh, boy. I don't know. I, <laughs> that's really thinking a lot about it. Um, if you're asking me to answer directly to Andy Kindler's uh, philosophy or you know how he – I don't know. Right. I, don't, I don't know, really. I know that Andy's a good guy. Yeah, I like and, Andy. And, um, and so, no, I can't really respond because everybody has a different – uh, outlook on how you see yourself right. and how you present yourself. Uh, and that's one thing I have learned the last couple of years, you know, sitting with a lot of different people who've had, you know, maybe, uh, um, you know, kind of different ideas of who I am or what my comedy is. Everybody's opinion is so refreshingly, uniquely, oddly different <laughs> of who I am and what I'm about. Um, but it's all projected off who really they are. Right. Cause you've had like, you know, over the time, negative comments from people that I really respect and like, like David Cross or Patton Oswalt, yes. who who have said negative things about you and maybe even almost implied that you maybe sell out to a degree with some of these Hollywood movies or whatever. Yet then you see them doing those same movies now. You yeah. see them in animated films being sure. the voices of listen. Once you're in a talking, chipmunks. once you're in a talking animal movie. You have no uh, wiggle room anymore. Yeah. You can't come be like, ah, I made it for my nieces and nephews. It's like, <laughs> right. motherfucker, just admit that you want money. Right, exactly. We all want to make money. Exactly. You know, there's no other way around it. If you're going to do something, anything that's – anything that – has a start time, whether it's a movie <laughs> or a concert or Letterman, you're in. You're in. You're part of it. Half these guys, you know, we have the same entertainment lawyers. We have the right. same. It's, you know, there's a lot of hogwash and poppycock, and, uh, it, but it's part of the character. That's what I've learned. And, like, for example, Patton recently, I, I saw a young adult, and um, I thought his performance was really great. Yeah. And I hadn't spoken to him in years. And I'd heard that he'd said, I wrote him an email. I said, I thought you were incredible. Your performance was amazing. You must be so proud of it. Um, and I just, because I, I appreciated what he did and I didn't want to let, you know, kind of ghosts of the past dictate how I feel now about artists. Right. That's really where I, I've, uh, had a lot of personal growth is that I'm not going to let others, another person's animosity, uh, dictate how I respond to 
them. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and, and vice versa. I'll call somebody out quicker than maybe I used to because I'm more um, able to have a, a debate, uh, which I was afraid to do for a lot of years, being a person who is, uh, you know, intimidated to stand up for myself uh, off stage. Right. Um, and Patton wrote me back and he wrote me this, you know, 10 minutes later, wrote me this wonderful email. We had a nice little, uh, parry thrust, uh, via, via, that's a little, you know, jousting back and forth. Yeah, back and forth in a, in, and it was wonderful. And it was great to kind of speak to it and be like, Hey, all that stuff that was kind of said in the past. And, you know, he said, I don't want to speak for him, but he, yeah. he said, a, uh, you know, he had some kind words and, um, and then it's like closed chapter on something that people would like to make more out of. And that's part of, I guess, the fun of what we all do, which is kind of, you know, we fuck with people and you fuck with egos. And and so it happens to me and we do it to each other and you just kind of learn to roll with the punches. I'm not as sensitive to it as I used to be. You've known me for a long time. I think you would probably attest to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen you definitely mellow out in a way where you have more peace about who you are, I think, and Mm -hmm. more peace about your place in the comedy world and i think it really has just mellowed you out i, I think you've also gone through so many life things sure. you know, we'll talk about in a minute but let's talk first about because i want to go kind of chronologically before we even get to some personal things that happened in your life that i'm sure were difficult to deal with then all of a sudden like the granddaddy of these like of this negative energy that came at you from within the comedy world came honestly from louis ck right and from the you know the accusations that were floating around that he had said or people around him had said and he didn't refute that that you stole three of his bits right and you obviously always said that that was not true I've, i asked you that directly years ago and you're like ben why would i steal three jokes right when i have 10 hours of material yeah. and ruin my reputation but um tell me a little bit about how that ar- arose first and then i want to get to your your appearance on this show on fx um I think that it was, uh, you know, at a time when, uh, you know, Louis was on the East Coast quite a bit. I was in LA working on, um, I think retaliation. And right when retaliation was done and packaged and starting to get ready to come out, I think is when Louis and I started working together at the Laugh Factory. He was coming out maybe to work on one of his, like the first show. He had like this, the CBS thing or, um, and so we had like a, a bit of a friendly rapport, I remember initially. And then because I was uh, dealing with a lot of stuff with my mom at that time, mm-hmm. uh, I was pretty tough to be around. You know, my mom was my, my heart, you know, it was tough to, the idea of losing her was like infathomable. It was like, I can't, I can't imagine this. So I would go into the club sometimes and I would bump people. I get up on stage and just didn't give a shit about, you know, who I bumped or what I did. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, a lot of that is like ego and, and, you know, just, it's the one thing that we can have that's like, I'm, I'm important somewhere in the world, you know, and, and you struggle so much to get there. You want to be able to a little bit flex your muscle when you get there. Yeah. But it's, it, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's so funny to look at it now and be like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted when, you know, with a little bit more perspective and life experience, you, you start to realize like how unimportant, uh, that really is. But at the right. time it was like, I can go into a club anywhere and, uh, you know, uh, and yet, I, it's so funny because I remember when the guys used to do it to me back in New York. I, uh, I, I liked it. I didn't mind getting bumped because I, in that weird, it's gla- like the glamour of comedy. Like yeah. Chris Rock just bumped me. I, I get to follow him. I get to go on. Like it, at that time coming up, um, I looked at it as a bit of like, 
it it motivated me to want to get to that place. Sure. Um, but so probably different though, maybe when you were a younger guy, Louis C.K. is older than you, and the, he sees you kind yeah, of surpass yeah, yeah. his place. It was it was wrong of me to do. I remember I, the night after I I bumped him, and he was pretty pissed. Uh, I went to him the next night. I shook his hand. I remember and was like, "I'm sorry," and I'd never bump you again. And um, and it, it was it seemed like everything was fine. Uh, and then you know the kind of the rest is history. Louis came out and. He'd written something on his website and, you know, he was pissed that, uh, you know, that we had similar concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just remember right away feeling like, yeah, this is, this is bad. I remember talking to my dad like a week after it happened and, you know, he was like, you know, it's, uh, it's like, uh, you know, you're dealing with politics now, Dane. And, you know, are you going to, are you going to try to fight a lie, especially to a person who's respected? Mm-hmm. I had no, I had nowhere to really go with it because I wasn't going to come out against somebody like Louie who, you know, people, um, respected and especially comics respected. Uh, so I had to just kind of take it and I didn't know at the time that it would become for, you know, a few years really, uh, a scarlet letter for a bit, you know, but I never understood that. Like if it were me, I would have like vehemently come right out and said, this is totally ridiculous. Well, I reached out to Louie. Right. Immediately. And, you know, he just didn't see it the way I saw it at that time. He didn't, uh, he didn't see it. I don't, you know, listen, I, should, it was something that at the time it's like, should we have dealt with it at the back of the club? Like comics do, you know, every day. Um, there's two pe- other people in this room and I just walked one of them. That's great. <laughs> uh, I'm in a room with four people. I just walked one person. <laughs> Wordy. Uh, uh, lost my train of thought but uh well the the point is so that got established and that once it was the scar sure. letter out there it's the internet now you can't erase anything it's out yeah, there the very thing that i used to you know get the good word out was now you know th- listen the pendulum right. swings both ways right i know it in life good bad it always goes back and forth <laughs> the same thing that i was using for good power of good was now biting me in the ass Um, in a way that, you know, you couldn't, you can't control it. You can't, you know, uh, I just had to, I had to let it, uh, steep as we say in the, in the tea world, in the tea business, (laughs) in the tea business. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And so it was, uh, and I, and I could only hope at that time. And I had conversations with some of my closest friends. I said, you know, I, I hope this, uh, I hope Louis comes around at some point and can realize he's powerful and that his words are powerful. And, um, I'm, I'm a good person. I would never do anything to outwardly, you know, uh, harm another artist. Uh, you know, I respect the art of stand up comedy always have. Uh, and I could only hope that it wasn't going to be 40 years later. I remember seeing like uh, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin when they had that, when Frank Sinatra reunited them on the muscular dystrophy thing. And it was like, they hadn't seen each other in 20 years. And they, it was like this wonderful moment of like embrace. And I just remember thinking like, you know, I, I hope I, I have a chance to have closure on this. Right. Um, sooner than later. And then in the interim of that, before we get to then you getting this very public moment of sort of being able to air that out on the show, Louis, you went through so much personal turmoil in the time between. So that comes out as you're rising, hitting kind of your stride. Right. But I'm getting laid a lot. You're getting a lot of pussy. I'm getting a lot of pussy. Yeah. Even during the bad times, you know, <laughs> filling voids, Ben. <laughs> probably a little angrier. <laughs> hook up some nights like that. You're like, you probably call some girls Louis and smack them around a little bit. <laughs> hey, hey, no, no. no, that's my imagination. About yeah, your life. that is your 
smack away in a, in a, in a playful Go way. Go ahead. Playful. Anyway, so you entered this this time, which which I think you know actually frustrates me being a close friend of yours to see how a lot of people would... I'm so glad you said that because I'm so frustrated being your friend. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I said. Oh, I've been waiting to say this. I didn't even mean it in that oh, context God whatsoever. Damn. damn. <laughs> the truth comes out. Huh? Is Steve Martin here yet? <laughs> God damn. Um, but to then see you went through all this personal turmoil, as you mentioned, within the, the span of about a year, you lost both your parents to cancer. Right. And obviously, I, I I can't fathom how difficult that is. My 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 father suffered colon cancer, and thank God survived it. You went through such a difficult thing back to back during this time, and and it didn't even seem to create compassion towards you. Even <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it kind of blew my mind that like people would would still try to hate on you, even though you, all you're doing is entertaining people. They're talking about three stupid jokes that clearly either could have absorbed from the, uh, the other person. Yep. And you're going through, you know, kind of the world throwing all this shit on you. And then also the thing that you had as your solace to get through that, your comedy was also going through such turmoil. I mean, how did you get through that? I bought an Aston Martin. <laughs> And I drove that motherfucker 200 miles an hour to Vegas. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> and I put it all on black. Yeah. Um, yeah, how did I deal with it? Yeah. Sure. I definitely, de- I, I, man, it was, it was surreal. It was really surreal. You know, this, uh, year has been a, you know, part of why I've been doing less comedy this year it was like a year of reflection. And that is a time I look at and it really was like, wow, nobody, I felt like I felt back in when I first started stand up. I am like, I'm alone. But the difference is now, uh, when I walk into the clubs, I'm not the guy that walks in, goes up on stage, tries to rip it wide open and leave. Uh, you know, I need to have connections with people. Where are my true friends? Where are the people that really love, care about me, think I'm funny, think I'm cool? And, you know, where's that reciprocated? So it was like, it was like boot camp for life, like learning what life is. Because up until that point, uh, in, in, in comedy, I'd never experienced the level I, I, I'd had like highs, you know, mm-hmm. doing SNL and then twice and, you know, time magazine. And I, I had some pretty incredible moments that I didn't even have a minute to enjoy until this year, which was actually, <laughs> it was right. actually a great year because I kind of did like a recap enjoyment of a bunch of stuff that I did over 10 years. And so, uh, it, and- uh, but then even on that, just to give people the full picture, because it's almost like a, an insane amount of bullshit you had to go through. You had to go through that with your parents. And then the betrayal of your brother, who I don't know if you can talk about it much, but stole millions of dollars from you. Yes. He was close to your whole life, your business manager, and blindsides you. Right. You trusted him with your money. I mean, did you feel like the world was just like raining down on you? Did, did you ever hit a, a, a point that was so low that you, you felt it wasn't worth it? I mean, did you ever have like that real deep depression for you? Are you trying this? to get me to admit that I wanted to kill myself? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to reach. <laughs> Trying to get you there. I listen, I'm gonna be honest, I never felt that way until the beginning of this interview. <laughs> and listening to that first twenty minutes I wanted to douse myself with kerosene <sighs> and then jump off a bridge, burning and falling. I feel like that's the order you have to do it. You can't really <laughs> douse yourself once you're soaking wet. Then again, that's something I try. You it know, is. you know me, I always like coming at <laughs> things from a different angle. <laughs> uh, no, I never uh had a moment of uh uh, bleak, you know, that, that downtrodden, you know, end of, but it did feel like, 
um, everything that I had created had fallen apart. Um, you know, whatever, whatever that my kingdom, uh, you know, was in flames and crumbling around me and, and you couldn't, if you had told me, oh, you're, you know, I can't get too much into the brother stuff, you know, but it, uh, if you had told me, you know, three years prior that that's what would have happened with my folks and my career and my brother, I, I, I would have thought that's hilarious what mm-hmm. you're, what you're selling me. Um, but having, you know, gone through it, I never, uh, I never gave up hope. And if anything, the entrepreneur in me <laughs> was already looking at it, um, as a means to play characters and share experiences that were so painfully real that when they were funny, they were funnier than miscellaneous funny because it was all coming from my heart. I remember feeling like, I know this is going to even out because I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a bad guy and I don't have to go around and, uh, fix shit that I really, you know, I didn't go in guns blazing Scarface. This isn't, a lot of it was things that, you know, happen, happenstance. And, and so I remember feeling like, I, I, I think I'm going to come out of this someday, hopefully sooner than later and be a more well-rounded, um, business person and hopefully friend and brother and all that other stuff. And then you started at that point too, kind of immersing in these movies you got to do. Right. This is a chance where you started to get leading roles in movies. You're, opening your first leading role was employee of the month with jessica simpson yeah sorry about that <laughs> daddy needed some video game money <laughs> that was your uh, ratatouille you're off on the chipmunks hey you know what i had that was uh i have you, when you talk about like yeah you know the the moment when you know uh you know a galifianakis does g-force or you know there's that doing employee of the month, I realized it was like real light. It was nothing like my stand up. Um, but my nieces and nephews were going to finally be able to actually see their uncle in a movie. Right. When, you know, they were pretty young at that time. I mean, now they're older and they think the movie stinks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you regret doing that movie? There's no regrets. No, I don't regret it at all because I learned a lot about movie making and right. I actually spent more time behind the scenes watching and, and, you know, learning how the movie was, you know, created and edited. And, you know, I, I really took it as like a, a crash course. Anyway, um, that'll, that'll be, that'll be the boring part of my book someday. Uh, <laughs> well, were you disappointed though in, in the reception that it got? Because you're trying to make this fun, light comedy. I remember you coming to the improv and you said, right before I came out, you said, we're going to find out if I'm going to be able to open movies right now. Right. Were you disappointed in just the fact that it didn't pop or, or, or did you expect maybe there to be a, a growth curve with that. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I was hoping for the biggest and best possibility. You know, sure. you're hoping to get that, you know, phone call in the middle of the night being like, Oh my God, it's a hundred million dollars. <laughs> right. We never knew. <clears throat> but, um, uh, was I disappointed? I was disappointed at the time, but I also realized I was working with a, a, a then a boutique Lionsgate. You know, we, we, they didn't have money. They didn't have, they weren't Warner brothers. They weren't universal. They weren't paramount. Um, so, in terms of just raw data, we did very well. Mm-hmm. The movie did very well. It was, um, you know, but in, in Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood stock exchange, uh, lingo. No, it definitely didn't change my career at that point. Is, is the way that movie was 
received part of maybe part of why you don't regret it, part of what pushed you also into more dramatic fare, like then you did Mr. Brooks, complete opposite of Employee of the yeah, Month. You got to remember, I did killer. shittier movies before Employee. Like to me, Employee was like that's a pretty, it's pretty decent. There's right. a there's a few highlight real moments. Like I'd come off doing like Simon a Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman movie and like in <laughs> three movies that never even like literally, literally three movies I made that like the editor halfway through was like ugh and just bailed on it. So to have a movie out and in theaters was progress. Sure. Um, it sure beat, you know, the, the, you know, the other one, which was like, you know, it would, those movies wouldn't even be in the bargain bin. Right. Like they were not even worthy of, they would yeah. like offend the bargain bin movie. I'm surprised Dennis Robbins' <laughs> film career did not take off. You would have thought he is a movie star. Oh, Only yeah. never. That guy. Oh, man. Um, rebound, great rebounder though. Greatest rebounder in uh, NBA history. Pretty much greatest rebounder ever. Yeah. So that's, if that makes a movie star, you know, it doesn't, but it could have. Yeah. Well, you know, like they, those, those producers, Moshe Diamante and all those guys, that's, they're in the business of like slap it together and, you know, make a, a, you know, let somebody get kicked in the head 15 times rapidly. And right. It's like a modern day Harvey Corman kind of just yeah, putting out yeah, these, yeah. you know, just like B-movies. cool crap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you must have been stoked. You're shooting with Dennis Rodman, shooting all over the country, all over the world. They must have been thinking you're on cloud nine back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew I was making a, good bad movie i was like i'm gonna yeah. be in this is the movie that i'm in someday that i you know in the middle of the night cringe and you know my kids will see and i'll they'll be like what did you do and right why are you trying to ruin the family name with this right but i was living in nice france i'd never left the usa wow. and now i'm living on the mediterranean sea um making it making a movie making a bad movie um <laughs> but after employee it was like okay i just need to i need to you know and that was again before everything kind of hit the uh hit the fan but i was like all right i just need to work on you know myself as a as a creative person get back to the basics and then you have another dramatic film that you just you know finished working on that that uh and that movie is um answers Answers to nothing Mm -hmm. i saw it you invited me to the screening of it it was so enjoyable man and it was such an intense role for you too based i think a lot of pain too and some similar things do you feel that the the things that you've gone through how has that informed you as an actor and also it it kind of speaks to what i what i was talking about before which is a lot of my experiences uh, you know away from comedy went into that you know I, i was talking to somebody recently about how whoopi goldberg i did the view and i admire whoopi because you know you look at the color purple and you look at you know her she's done everything she's done hosting the oscars to talk show to t- great television great film work ghost you know there is a multifaceted multi-hyphenated as as hollywood says these days yeah individual and that's the kind of career i want to emulate but i said to her as a comedian we collect ideas and then you share these funny things and sometimes they're painful but some stuff is like you absorb and you live through and you're like i can't put this in stand-up people want to be entertained like some of this stuff needs to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think as a, as an artist that, uh, you know, something like answers to nothing allowed me to vent and put things in a place that I couldn't bring anywhere else. So do you enjoy more dramatic acting or comedic acting? Uh, doesn't either one doesn't matter. Comedic acting is so much about like the tempo and the entire, you know, production and how I, I love that, that, it's it's like a house of cards. You everybody has to be very careful. If anybody hits the table wrong, it's over. Drama is so much more about like you can. It can I watched this movie Shame last night, mm. and uh, you know dealing with sexual addiction, and you know it's it's you. It's about you. Yeah. And uh, and I wrote it was the screenplay. it was incredibly prolific. The way that you know some of these scenes could just 
uh, linger in, in like, you know, in non comedic way. You didn't know when it was over some of this stuff. So it really was like gut wrenching. And I like being able to play those moments. I like, I actually enjoy uncomfortable, the Louie episode. Right. How wonderful to be actually for many, many reasons. Um, uh, but just purely as a creative person to be able to sit with another, um, you know, very talented artist and create something that involved forgiveness and pain and, and, uh, you know, being, you know, uh, um, self, uh, you know, self, uh, you know, taking the piss out of oneself, yeah. and, you know, busting each other's chops. And like, there was just so much reflecting to a deep place. So, I mean, there's the one guy on Facebook also asked me to ask you about that. His name is, uh, Spencer Kilgore, he said to ask you, how did the Louis episode come about? How did that all of a sudden, you had this big feud for years, you guys would normally talk. How did it come about and how did, why did you decide to do it, first of all? I think that when Louis reached out to me in January this year, he had asked me if I would uh, sit with him. He had written something. I flew to New York immediately because I looked at it as like, this is going to be closure. This is going to be a mo- I don't know what it's going to lead to. I don't know what he's written. I don't know. All I know is I'm going to sit in a room with Louis C.K. and um, you know, man to man, be able to look at him and say, I've never stolen a thing in my life. That's my, that's my legacy. And, um, you know, I hope that we can move away from that because people are going to ask us about it forever. And I know my answer and what it's been for a few years and hopefully you'll, you'll see my growth or whatever needed to be there. But it turned into this, uh, wonderful opportunity with him. He'd written, you know, a, an episode, um, uh, of the show, uh, where, our characters would, you know, finally kind of come head to head on, on this thing. Initially he had my character as Kane Duke. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember just being like, you know, Louie, I just let me be me. You know, I'm, I have nothing to hide and, and I'm here. I'm showing up. This is your gig. You're writing it. You're directing it. You're editing it. All my trust and, and everything is in you in a person that some might say like, well, you know, w- uh, things that he did in the past affected me. Some, some might say negatively and like, was that a concern? And it really wasn't because, because I know me. <laughs> uh, and I'm finally comfortable with knowing that my fans that stuck by me, millions of fans on that tour that, you know, you, you spent time, they, they love me. They care about me. And you're able to do what you said. You're able to, to, uh, not let your thoughts about an artist affect your view of their art. Exactly. Which, um, isn't always easy. You know what I mean? We, you know, it's sometimes tough. There's people out there still that, you know, you can look at and be like, I could look at and be like, I don't know why that had to happen with us, but you know, I still, I struggle with that. You know, we all, we all, uh, are, are fragile in that way. But when I sat with Louie and, and we read the script together, um, that was the first thing he had you do, right? He said he sat that, that you down, <laughs> yeah. and he said, before we even talk, please read this with me, right? Yeah, he handed it to me. And he's, it was not like, go to your hotel room and call me. It was like, can we read this right now? And so we cold read that scene, which was pretty much 98% of what was in the episode. It wasn't like, let's read it, and then he was going to tailor it. It was like, this is what I wrote. You're going to do it or you're not. And if you don't do it, I'm going to probably have an actor play you. Wow. <laughs> so, so I was like, I read it and, uh, I, gosh, I wish we had taped us reading it th- for the first time at, it, sitting opposite his desk. Cause that was pretty incredible. Like I'm, I'm discovering the words and feeling the emotion of what I'm feeling built up, you know, with him. And yet we're both like, I'm looking at pictures of his beautiful kids and like, he knows things that have happened in my life, you know, about my parent, like 
we're connecting in a way we've never connected but we know it's bigger than both of us because of like the way people have taken a hold of it. It was a, it was a, it was like an incredibly, like there was like a, an energy in that room just as we were reading it. And so he wrote all those words. So, so how accurately to your feelings and how you interpreted it, did he write your part? Um, I think he wrote it accurately to the tone of what the show is and also how playing with perception Um, but there were definitely things in there that I would, uh, take umbrage. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I don't have, you know, I don't have security guards around me. Right. He's got me coming through like the, the Darth Vader. Uh, I don't sit in a darkened, uh, dressing room. My dressing room. Huge security guards. I was on tour with you. It was very chill. I would knock on your door. You're like, come on in. Yeah. We'd have chicken together. No, we would eat. We, you know, it's, we would scare each other sometimes, but, but it was, it was okay. And we'd scare each other a lot. That was fun, yeah, man. It was fun. We both got each other good a few times. Really good. Like to where you want to punch the other person because yeah. you're mad at him. <laughs> um, but to be in that, uh, to have the knowledge that it was like, okay, this isn't all, this is also entertaining. And I had to give into that as well and be like, this is, I wouldn't even say give in. I take that back. I had, I, I was able to receive that and be like, this is entertaining. This plays on perspective. And also, I don't think people think about, me as much as I think that people think about me. And I think that goes for all of us. Right. Sure. You know what I mean? It was like a very narcissistic world. Yeah. 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 I I had like finally come through this great kind of, uh, you know, epiphany moment in my life where it was like, I'm way too worried about like, uh, perception. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we probably spend more energy as men wondering about perception and trying to get laid. Right. And if we can figure out like, how to do both 50% less than right. we are like, we could probably, you know, build beautiful <laughs> new cities and skyscrapers. And, uh, but you would say that overall more than not, he was able to capture the essence of how, what you felt. Uh, yes, because I think that what he, he really, um, what he, mm, the, the, the foundation of what it was all about was I, what I felt was about, um, forgiveness and forgiveness means accepting your own responsibilities and directly and even indirectly. Sometimes we have to be more cognizant and conscious of other human beings and how frail and, and, um, uh, tender that we are. And so I think what it dealt with was the understanding that, um, you don't have to have the whole truth. You just have to realize that you don't, it doesn't all need to be okay. Right. That we're okay not being okay. You can agree or disagree sometimes. It's not even agree to disagree because I think that it, it, to some extent, but I think it's just not all wounds will be healed. It's accepting to throw out some more metaphors. Go to metaphors.com. People, people won't ever be in the same box as the shopping cart of boxes. <laughs> it was, it was, um, it was like opening up the, to the idea that, um, we can, we can be together as artists and not have complete understanding of what the other person's intentions and, um, and lessons are. Right. It was a big lesson, I think, for me. And it was, and I, and I let go of so much in that moment. You, you watch the episode, you watch the scene, uh, and everything is left there. Anybody who still carries it, I still get, you know, people still write, you know, stuff that's deflammatory once in a while. It, it means so, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it means it's so minuscule to what 
it used to mean as like this kind of like that's a piece of this paramount thing that's right. that's stopping my growth and stopping my evolution and stop and that it's like so uh refreshing to be uh past that but i also just found a very interesting kind of in a poetic coming full circle that the whole issue between you guys was he originally thought that because you guys had parallel thought, similar lines of thinking, mm-hmm. that you stole these words from him, and then he ends up taking the air out of all that by him writing a scene that happened to capture your voice really well. Yeah, it's no it, one said you stole Dane's thoughts in that scene. Right? They just maybe he realized, oh, maybe you actually can just figure out how people. It's like Inception. Think and be similar. It this, is. It's Inception because are we asleep a- right now? That's the question. <laughs> your your listeners are. Spin- uh- <laughs> <laughs> spin a top. Somebody spin a top real quick. It, it's um, it, it's inception in the sense of like, oh, again, in, in the idea of like people are – nobody's thinking as much about this as probably myself mm-hmm. and, and Louie did. But because our fans care and there are people – some people that you know maybe in an OCD way want to right. like dissect it more, there's so many f- interesting layers just about like what it meant for us to sit down, whether it was all – factual whether some was enter for entertainment you know some of it being uncomfortable some of it being like wow they are very comfortable with each other mm-hmm. like there's there were so many different way perspectives and ways that you could look at that um and quite simply for me i just i left that set and um i've never told this to anybody i said um to my mom and dad i said uh i did that for you guys i did that for you and I did it for myself as well, but I did it because um, it was the, probably the last thing in my life where a pride fucked with me a little. Uh, you lo- use a little Marcellus Wallace uh, Pulp Fiction. Right. That's pride fucking with you. Oh, yeah. When Louis first said, like, I knew immediately that I wanted to do it, like my gut, but then like the, the pride mind comes in and you're like, it's his show and it's his. And when I got past that, which was pretty quick and read that scene with him, you know, went to him, went on his turf kind of thing when I was like, fuck it, I'm just go. I said yes. Then I had the moments of insecurity of like, dude, do I go? Shit. Right. But then when I was there, it was like, I know how my folks would be so proud of me in this moment to be able to finally have closure on something and move on with the rest of my life and own that moment. It was, it's That's amazing. It's the, isn't it weird? It's like, it's one of the greatest, proudest things I've ever done. And it came from one of the most painful, uh, you know, empty moments of my life. So how much do you think that it's a breath of fresh air now and like a new leaf that happened? It's kind of like the culmination of the full circle of this dark period that you had and had to go through. Do you feel it's just the world lifted off your shoulders now and you can go into 2012, the last year of the planet with <laughs> some freedom and kind of breathing a bit easier? I do, man. I really, you know, I, I, I it's a, it was a year of, you know, I, my goal this year was to, work on myself as hard core as I worked on everything else without stand up because stand up is a great distraction. You do a show and then it's all about you. And then it's all about like, I got to find some pussy and I got to find like, <laughs> now I got to eat some crazy foods and now I got to like, but now I got to get to the gym tomorrow. Cause I got to look good for that next show so I can get the pussy. Yeah. It's like this weird, like, you know, the way our, our crazy, Just to break the news to you, by the way, you don't have to be in good shape to get the pussy. That is true. I'm living proof of this, mm, but I see the, oh, no, no, you're, gonna go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. you're a good man. Ben. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for the girls that are with you, but they, they have to look at that. Um, True, man. No, but uh, but 
so this year was like, I need to do the same kind of dedication to um, my friendships and my everything, everything in my life that's around me and, and taking care of the roots, the roots of my life. And so, yeah, doing that and having that finally be um, behind me, it, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's positioning me, I think for, um, new, new education, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm back in school now. Yeah. I'm learning something new. And you know what I find interesting too, is that you have never tried drugs or alcohol in your life. Right. And I see you and I say, (laughs) (laughs) how do you see the shining example on top of the hill? That is me with my dabbling in fun things and not ever want to try it. Are you curious just the experience? How come you've never wanted just to try to get drunk once or to get high once? Smoke a little pot one time. Um, I think it's just it's a gamble for me because a lot of the men in my family come from a uh, – this is the – most men in my family have like this thing where it's like all potential uh, greatness. All, there's a greatness in them to, to achieve something. And then they ruined it with, uh, with the disease of alcoholism. So I would watch, you know, my father, my grandfather, you know, my great grandfather. I know all the stories. I went back and kind of did my, um, you know, looked at the, at the research and talked to people in the family. And I was like, wow, what if I have that? What if I have that same thing where it's like I drink and I'm dependent on it? You know, I really admire that self control, but how about weed? Weed, there's no history of weed stuff, right? Um, no. <laughs> well, there you go. Just smoke with me once. <laughs> I'm not going to completely say no to that. Um, cause I don't believe anymore that anything is 100%. Um, but right now, today, no, it's not something I need today. That's cool, man. Yeah. Um, so a couple questions people here before we go into, we'll, you know, we're going to lighten it up now and just go into a couple, more fun questions. And I then, thought that was very light. It was so light. We talked about it. More like as I'm stoned out of my mind right now. So I'm light as trees right now. And trees are heavy. It doesn't even make any sense. But um, I'm not stoned, by the way. I would never do that for a podcast unless sometimes, but not today. Anyway, um, one person on uh, Twitter asked me, at, at Duty Arsh, asked me, asked you, how do you know Ben? How do you know me? Do you want to tell a little bit about, about how we got to know each other? Um, well, yeah. I've known you how many years now? Over a decade. No, maybe like nine years, I think. Oh, I'm thinking of someone else. <laughs> um. <laughs> if you kept that first phone call, it's been like 12 years. Uh, yeah, well, basically, it goes, goes back that far. So Ben and I, I, I knew Ben from, um, well, when I really started becoming a fan of yours was Ben would do shows at the, um, at the Laugh Factory, the world famous Laugh it's Factory. Very, very famous. Yeah, they're going to open one in North Korea now that that country's, <laughs> um, uh, I would I would see Ben do his shows, but Ben would you know kind of put on these shows that weren't just uh, hosting stand up. He would he would have uh, you know uh, homemade video stuff and you know, not just like oh here's a here's a you know a video that I put together like today. I was like well edited and you had like graphics and mm-hmm. it was like you know you had like a diary thing that was like MTV's diary and. And it was just like, it was a show. You put on a great show with like, I could tell next to no budget, but you know, you really, and the place, place was packed and I would participate in that show. And, um, I appreciated first and foremost, your, uh, you know, your tenacious, I'm drawn to people like that. You know, I don't know what happened to you with this (laughs) thing that you're doing. Um, a lot of people don't know that old show I used to do it. 
at the Laugh Factory, uh, which was college night on Tuesday nights at 9.30, yeah. that was the exact same time as the heyday of Dublin's. Most Tuesdays, you would play our show, Scott right. and I produced, and then you'd go over to Dublin's down and Sunset that. and close yeah. that show up. Right. But Dublin's the one that got all the press for being the hot show that helped build you up, but I feel like it was 50% college night. I would say 10%. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then that college night is what became Comedy Juice at the Improv years later. True. But the thing that was happening at Dublin's is they were, you know, it was like Dice and Roseanne Barr and Chappelle. There was like Timberlake would come in. Yeah, they were getting a lot of people and big celebs and Jay Z and people were like, there was a lot of people hanging on there. Um, But your show was uh, an example of like, you know, there's there's not a lot of art sometimes that happens in L.A. for a place that you know, and that was like I felt like you were creating some great art, you know, in the world of comedy. That means a lot. Um, And so. Yeah, so we had like, you know, we kind of had like a, a, a bit of a connection or, you know, we were kind of acquaintances and then we had like a falling out. We had a big fight, yeah. Big fight. Uh, I'm gonna tell that story. I blasted you. Yeah, you did. Uh, I think you were talking, you talked behind my back to a girl that I knew or something. Yeah, it was like a very weak moment in my life. I, I take responsibility for it. One time on stage you talked about it and you summarized it well. You said that I did something not that cool and you overreacted to it. Uh, the first part, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're you're uh, you would share something with me on the phone, and I did overreact to it. I remember. And then I went and to your girlfriend at the time. I asked into it, even though you told me yes. not to ask into it. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't even know to this day why and I then, did it. And then I came at you, you with a, right with a verbal <laughs> with a verbal equivalent of Robert De Niro's uh, payphone beating. Uh, Hell yeah. <laughs> You came out and you fellas. pulled me outside laugh factory. Like, come outside right now. Yeah. And you're in my face and you were like, if it were anybody but you, I would punch you out right now. Yes. And I'm like, don't say that. And you're like, well, I'm not punching you anyway. Yeah. But you were very, very upset. And we didn't talk for like seven months. We longer. Long, maybe a year even actually. Yeah. You wrote me a heartfelt letter. Yeah. So, uh, I remember receiving that letter and at that point being like, okay, we, we have to clear this up because the letter was, it, <laughs> it was really like, you know, a wonderful kind of, uh, cleansing, if it I was. may. Uh, and it was at that point too, I was like, okay, I gotta, you know, we need to, we need to repair this. And, and it actually bettered our friendship. It really did. Because it, it, I think that sometimes when things like that also happen, um, there were probably at that time, I did also look, when you, I probably looked upon you also as somebody who, you know, dude, we're competitive. We get, we get scared of each other sometimes. And I looked at you as a guy that it's like, he's really competitive and, and smart and funny and, and we have weird ways, I think, of sometimes – I was probably reacting more, not because of the dumb girl situation, but like who knows what was happening in my life career at that time. You know how like it's it's a weird chess match and yeah. sometimes the way – you know, I'm, I'm being honest now and in a way that probably most people are not or would, would refute or deny. But the truth is it's like I think I realized that what I really – it wasn't that I was mad at you, that I really admired you and that uh, I, you know I wanted to work with you. And so, but it's that, it's, it's that, you know, I brought up the, you know, I love Jerry Lewis and I brought up the Martin Lewis thing. It's like, yeah, they made each other for 10 years. But what comes with that is like, why can't I be by myself made? Right. And there's those weird moments in careers where you're like, how come this other guy is, you know, getting all the attention and, you know, we're, we're such strange, uh, beings, man. And we're such strange, you know, humans, not even just comedians, but it was in that moment that I was like, maybe what I'm feeling is, is like, uh, that I, I, uh, don't know how to communicate my, uh, affinity for Ben 
and it came out in a fucked up way. But then you, you, you but you really did fuck up with that chick. So yeah. I don't know. And that letter I sent you, by the way, <laughs> form letter. It was my form heartfelt letter that I send to everybody. But, um, but then, you know, to your credit again, you came on the other side of that and ended up asking me years later, you one time told me you want to take me out to lunch and you told me that you wanted to work with me and you wanted to write projects together. Yep. And that was one of the most exciting moments of my life. There's a great quote, and it's called, um, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, you're a hardworking guy, man. I remember that, you know, in that conversation being like, uh, you know, I already knew I was like, I was going to bring you out on a tour and, um, you know, I knew that we needed to figure out a way to join forces. And we have some projects coming. I don't know if they want to talk about any, any specifics, but we have some projects that you and yeah. I are writing together that we're hopefully going to unleash on the world. Soon. Definitely, we will unleash. I don't like talking about stuff too too much you yeah. know, until it's done. But we we've got a couple of things completed, and you know we've gotten some we've gotten some great reactions from people. So we just got to keep. You know, once one thing sticks, yeah, then everything else sometimes falls into uh, into place. So we just got to keep on hustling. And I remember that after you had the. You know, took me out to lunch and told me all that, and you wanted to write projects with me, and you said, think about it and get back to me. And I remember I called my parents, and I was just so ecstatic that the guy that was one of my comedy heroes, one of my favorite comedians ever, came up to me and asked me to be his writing partner. And I remember when I called you and I said, I'm absolutely in. I want to do it, and thank you so much for asking me to do it. I'll never forget what you said in response. It really was such an eye-opening thing to me about how even when you're at the top sometimes you don't – you don't have everything you want is you said to me in response, thank you uh, for being willing to gamble your pristine reputation. You just around there forget you said your your completely pristine reputation on me, who doesn't have the most. I was actually reputation. talking to somebody else in the room. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I was talking Daniel Tosh was in the room. Really? And I feel like that, that ruins the whole story for me. <laughs> I am um, so sorry that it had to just, come out on this show. <laughs> I just remember, I just remember feeling so touched by that. It was like I couldn't believe that Dane Cook. No, really, was, somebody else was in the room. Oh, it really was. Okay, then I can just let go of that story. Um, I want to ask you one more story, and then we'll just move on to a quick recap of 2011, so we can okay. usher in the new year. Um, now, you obviously. You know, we've talked about some of the the harder moments, some of the lower moments. You've also obviously reached so many highs, and one of those has to be the people that you looked up to in your career. Yeah. Who are the people? You could tell me one or two people that you looked up to that you maybe got to then meet recently that you know kind of brought things full circle for right. you. Right. Well, I mean, com- you know, comics that I I used to watch Bill Cosby himself. That that was his uh, one man show constantly in junior high school. Junior high school was like. Uh, Van Halen and Bill Cosby himself. That's what I remember about <laughs> seventh and eighth grade. That's all I listened to. Van Halen and, uh, watching that Cosby himself and just, uh, and so years later when Letterman was out, uh, f- it was my third Letterman appearance. He was out getting bypass surgery and I got to the studio that day and I was like, who's going to be hosting? They were like Bill Cosby. Oh, wow. And so he, I was sitting in my dressing room alone. He came into the dressing room, Mr. Dane. Cook is in the dressing room and he's gonna put on the suit and go out and make the people laugh with the jello pudding, you see. You always have to add the jello pudding, you see. It's, it's, it's law. Um, so I sat with him for about an hour and we talked about stand-up comedy and he was just incredibly gracious and cool and, um, but Steve Martin, you know, that moment of being 15 years old and wanting to, uh, you know, reach the, 
the Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Uh, and when he wrote his book, Born Standing Up, great read, by the way. A great you, book. Yeah, it's great. You can get it on audible.com, audiblepodcast.com slash last week. Yeah, there's about 70 pages that are, mm, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if you can dig through that, no, it's, it's an incredible book. And, um, Steve Martin sent me, he sent me a copy of it and I didn't get it. And then he wrote, then, but somebody had told me he'd sent it. So I wrote him and was like, I didn't get a copy. So he sent me another copy. So I have two signed books and he wrote two really beautiful, uh, things. He wrote, um, he wrote, uh, one of them is really personal. I'm going to sh- uh, save, but the one that he, he wrote, um, uh, in the first book that he sent was, uh, just substitute your, your name for mine as you read this book. Wow. And it was one of the, in that moment, and remembering that's again coming out of like this insane kind of decade of, you know, craziness. It was like. I wanted you to read the book with Ben Glebe's name throughout the whole book. Yeah. It was a book about failure. It's <laughs> 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 not the way I read it. I found it very yeah, successful. Yeah. Read it backwards. <laughs> you end up uh, penniless as a magician in Disneyland. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um. But he, he wrote that and man, I like, um, I got very emotional because that was like, God, I wanted to, I wanted it so bad to share that with my folks right at that moment. You know, that was like, they got to see me do everything. Don't get me wrong. But I remember just feeling like mm, it's worth all the stuff, all that, you know, and, uh, to have this moment, you know, and so I wrote him a thank you and I asked him if I could take him to lunch and he, he, he agreed and I sat down with him for a couple of hours and had this, uh, he's an interesting guy. He's definitely like, uh, uh, you know, you want to talk about reminding me of like my early years of like, I would walk into a club and I was so full of light and like, you know, performance and yet off stage, he's a very different person off stage. He's very kind of, uh, you know, soft spoken. Uh, but the lunch was incredible and he was, he was, um, just really, uh, it was amazing to sit and, you know, kind of just talk shop with somebody that inspired your life. You know, one of the people that like gave you purpose. And did you see in his eyes, him missing the stage? I asked him that and no, I don't think he ever really had a, uh, I, I, you know, I know a lot about Steve Martin and I, so I have my, one man philosophy. And I think that he had such a difficult upbringing with his father that I think it made him very difficult to feel, uh, to feel the, uh, the, the, to be able to acknowledge love of something. I think that, you know, his dad was pretty tough on him. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, so I think in another world he would be able to be like, yeah, I love it. Or, you know, but he's, he's, he's pretty, you know, I think he's always thinking of like the next thing, you know, and maybe not too much about like, I did this, I did arenas and, um, but recently I met Jerry Lewis. Oh, tell me that story. And that was, that's, you know, I couldn't think of a better way to end what has been a, you know, a year of personal growth. Um, so I went down to see the Jerry Lewis documentary that just came out, which is wonderful called uh, method to the madness. And it's like his life story. 
Jerry's 86. He's been in the business since he was five. He's been in show business for 80 years. Jesus. 80 years performing. Um, and so I went down to the, to see the, the, um, the documentary. They had a screening down at Paramount and, you know, about 500 people were there. And at the end of the documentary, he got up to say a few words. And when he got up there, he was, you know, kind of thanking his director. And then he said, where is Dane Cook? And it was like this, my heart just froze. I was oh, with my shit. buddy Richard and, and Richard literally grabbed my arm, like my gay lover. Like he was like, what? what? <laughs> like he, he really like wrapped himself. I, I, it took me a second. And Richard, by the way, is gay, <laughs> but not my lover. <laughs> so that, hence why he would grab me and such. Sure. A, That's what like, you want when you get called out publicly for your gay friend to start <laughs> caressing you publicly. <laughs> he's a good, he's a good man. Um, and so he, you know, where's Dane Cook? And then he said, I understand that, that Dane Cook, just hearing that voice say my name, I'll never forget. Like, regardless of what happened after that, which was, it was tremendous. It was like, so I kind of half stood up and I, I was right in the front. I was like, hi, Jerry. And he, he thanked me for being there. He was like, thank you so much. He said all these kind words. Um, and I, I, you know, I said, I love you, Jerry. We love, we love you. And, um, I honestly don't remember a lot what he said after that because I was so in my own head of just like this is so unexpected. I didn't even know that Jerry Lewis knew me, let alone was gonna you know call me out. Um, and then he brought me up after to sit with him, and we ended up having like a like very deeply engaging conversation with each other uh, for about ten minutes. And then he said, you know, my boy, I have something I want to send to you. And um, his daughter gave him my number and then the next day he called me. So I pick up a block number. I'm like, hello. And he's like, Dane Cook, <laughs> Jerry Lewis. <laughs> hey lady. <laughs> um, and so I've got, uh, I'm going to go down and see him in Vegas. He invited me down there to dinner. I'm going to go uh, meet with him in a couple of weeks. And, uh, he, you know, just said, he's like, you know, I, I have some things I want to share with you. Some things that he said something I remember. It was really wild. He goes, you know, a lot of the people that I, I would learn from or share things or go to or are, are, are gone. All my closest friends are, are dead. And then he's like, but I have a lot of stuff in here to share and to give. So I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm becoming friends with, uh, Jerry Lewis. Wow. And so when you ask me about like the hardships and the knocks, you know, I first and foremost say to my fans, I'm still here. I'm still doing it. I'm doing it for my fans. I'm doing it for my love of what I do. But you know, uh, to be able to share a little bit of time with somebody uh, who is a legend, iconic person, and who wants to, you know, pass on a few words of wisdom to me. It's like it makes it worth going through the all the unknown. If you're out there right now listening and whatever it is that you want to do in your life, you're like, it's so unknown and that's scary. That's That's right where you want to be. That's the beginning of what's going to lead to something absolutely incredible. You're on the precipice of, uh, of a wonderful opportunity that you get to work towards. And you actually, you actually called me that night to tell me about it when it happened. Mm -hmm. And you shared with me something very interesting that he said too. He said at one point about people that would hate on you. And, you, and he said, it happened to me too. People are going to hate yeah. because they don't, they can't do what you do. You have something unique. You have, you have a unique skill that you bring and they wish they could do that. You um, even told me he was, lamenting 
that he never got to do a movie like Employee of the Month. He's like, what he could have done in that setting. Oh, how wrong he <laughs> Oh, Jerry. He's getting old. No, no. He, I thought that was very sweet of him to say that. But, you know, listen, it's not like we're we're not uh, – we get to do something that's so incredible, this this life that we lead. Oh, they're going to say this podcast. This, this podcast, you know? <laughs> Don't laugh so hard at that. Um, and so, listen, to have any kind of, um, you know, to have anybody like a Jerry Lewis, you know, uh, share even a, a, a little minuscule amount of time and say some kind words, like, goes so, so far for us, yeah. you know, because we, we sacrifice a lot to do this. You know, we really do. It's a lot of, it's a, it's scary. It's a scary way to live your life. Because we want to protect our families and we want to, you know, when our folks are sick, we want to be able to get them the best care. We want to, but, you know, but you need to do that by being the best every night in order to have value. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard. It's a lot of sacrifice. People see like the end part of it, which is the blessing. It's wonderful. That's, we live there where we can kind of shine in the spotlight. And, um, but yeah, to, to end the year the way, this year, especially to have, um, you know, Jerry Lewis put his armor on me is letting me know that, uh, I'm okay. And that the lessons that I had to learn were, uh, you get rewarded sometimes for things that you lose. And I've lost a lot, but I've gained a lot. Well, not to get too gushy about it, but I feel that same way about our relationship. Oh, thanks, man. Me and you, because when you embraced me and said that you believe in my comedy and my work ethic and that you... We are just sucking each other's cocks off right here. I was going to ask if you wanted God to make out. Do you want to make out for me? I think we're going to have to just to actually be able to... <laughs> <laughs> there weren't a table between us right now. Oh, my God. All right, man. enough of that shit. Anyway, wow. I appreciate everything. And I appreciate you being here. So let's end this thing with a little bit of laughter and a little bit of lightheartedness, recovering the year that was, recovering from and re covering it in our thunder round of 2011. Right, 2011, almost over. Couple days left. Uh, let's recap what happened during this year. We're just going to go thunder round style, very quick. Do it because you cannot hear lightning. Here it comes. Um, this year, lots happened. Um, let's start with Lady Gaga coming into the Grammys in an egg. What do you think of that? Um, Bob, I thought that it was. Uh, I thought it was atrocious. <laughs> Did you ever want to come in an egg? You were you jealous. You didn't think of that yourself. <laughs> I wanted to leave in an egg many times. Um, no. I thought it was, I think that she is a, she's definitely one person that, um, she likes to keep people's attention by being, you know, outrageous yeah. and obnoxious sometimes. I was right there on it's the, it's very Andy Kaufman. It is actually. I was right there on the, on the red carpet when she, and I was doing interviews for the Grammys and mm-hmm. she walked by, in, she was carried yeah. by See in what the people egg. do to avoid actually speaking to Ben Galeeb. That's exactly right. Like, put me in a fucking egg. They will shell themselves like they're embryos <laughs> just to, they will revert to childhood. <laughs> 
Um, so that was, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Then Chris Brown, not having a good couple years, mm. goes on Good Morning America, tries to talk about his album, and he gets asked all these Rihanna questions, yep. flips out, has a temper tantrum in the dressing room, throws a chair, shatters a window in yeah. Good Morning of America. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, it's, that, that's, that's one of those moments where you, uh, you feel like this guy just needs to sit and just fess up. Just talk about it. Stop trying to, you know, put it all in the past and, and own it. Yeah, you gotta fucking grow past that shit. I mean, you were the one in the wrong. You beat somebody up, so you know, you lay your hand on a woman. It's not cool shit. Um, and obviously, a, a an event. I don't know if there's a comedic angle necessarily to it, but you can't skip it over. In March, the Japan uh, Japan earthquake that created the tsunami and nuclear disaster. Yeah. Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant still leaking. Yeah, and and you know what? Lost Gilbert Godfrey his job as the Affleck spokesperson. <laughs> Unbelievable. Almost the greatest tragedy that came from the thing. Unbelievable. Gilbert Gottfried now can find no work. Hey, what's going on in Japan? Are they back on their feet or are they still uh, leaking uh, radiation they're, every day? They're doing better, but they're still leaking radiation. Apparently, they've botched the closing up of the, the, the shutting down of this nuclear facility. They said it might take up to 30 years to fully oh stop God. it. And what about Godfrey? How's he doing? Uh, Gilbert Gottfried just bounced back a little. <laughs> he makes duck noises at home okay. to himself. Oh, um, the Arab Spring obviously was the big story this year as far as protests and revolutions around the world. The unrest in the Middle East and Northern Africa toppled the leaders in Tunisia and Egypt. Yep. Topped pre- toppled President Zine al-Abidine Ben Ali. In, He's on my Facebook. <laughs> He's one of your Facebook likes. I drew yeah. that picture of you as a child. <laughs> and then, of course, Mubarak in Egypt got toppled. And Muammar Gaddafi put up the biggest fight in uh, Libya and was killed in his compound by his own people, by rebel forces that finally got through. Uh, do you think we're going to see more unrest as 2012 happens? Have you ever seen Jeff Ross perform a Steel Panther? It's, <laughs> I, I have it's not. very, very scary. It's very it's, similar to it's that. Insa- it's, it harkens back. People start protesting and screaming. Wow. Really yeah. interesting. Interesting. Okay, I will avoid that performance then if possible. Probably the biggest news story of the year, Rebecca Black's Friday video, the most viewed YouTube video globally. Yep. Do you think that is deserved? Um, I was masturbating to it. <laughs> I No, I had two windows open at the same time. I just want to be very clear. I wasn't masturbating to her. I had some, uh, you know. On what day of the week were you masturbating? It was a Friday. It was a Friday, of course. <laughs> so everybody looks forward to that moment. Uh, Lindsay Lohan just still having a lot of trouble. Her teeth all jacked up, I'm assuming from the drugs. Spent some good time she at the She got them fixed, though. She got them fixed. Yep. After a red carpet event where yep. she had drugged out meth teeth. She, her teeth, who knows, maybe she I'm had just, it's meth. maybe she had just eaten a caramello. <laughs> stretch it out. When they say stretch it out, they mean the caramello, not your body parts. Yeah. Um, in April, William and Kate got married. Do you give a shit about this? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why do we care about royal w- weddings? I don't know. I just, I love all the flair on their jackets when they're getting married and stuff. <laughs> True. Right? It's like a TGI Fridays meets, <laughs> <laughs> meets Colonel Clink. <laughs> and the hats. Oh my God, the hats. Phenomenal fucking hats. What idiots. <laughs> they hold on to tradition oh, over there. They're it's so like, stupid. Do you care for crumpets? I don't know what a fucking crumpet even is anymore. Have a fucking soda and shut the yeah, fuck up a crumpet that's what i feel about england um on may 1st on may 1st president obama kills osama bin laden also known as may day may day that's right sends in the seals yep surprises the shit out of the porn riddled and addicted osama bin laden yeah 
Do you think that was handled right? Should we have captured Abraham to trial or was murdering him right there the, the best move? No, I think that you had to go in and you had to, you know, that was one of those, that, that was like a, that's rough justice, as we like to say back in the Old West. That's right. That was a little rough justice. It was. Yeah. If you're going to hide for that long, you got to accept the beating that's going to come to you when you when you finally get revealed. True that. I hope they at least collected the porn because probably it was some top-notch porn. The guy was a huge I bet he had some good world stuff. leader. Oh, yeah. Um, then Jim Carrey's very strange love video to Emma Stone. Oh, weird. What do you think about that? Would you yeah, ever I thought that profess was very love strange. like that? I don't know. That was just really, that was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Do you think it was a performance piece or was he really expressing affection towards her? I, see, I don't know. There's a thing about performance piece where I like to see the performance. <laughs> I like to see it somewhere, a glimmer somewhere in their eyes. Right. But that was just weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. He sold it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, it's been an interesting year for marriage. Gay marriage became legal in New York yep. in July. And then also a lot of marriages kind of fell apart. Celebrity marriages. Ashton Kutcher's alleged hot tub affair um, on the night of his sixth anniversary. Right. Arnold has a love child with the maid, kind of down and out in Beverly Hills inspired Dreyfus banging the maid style. Um, do you think that um, celebrity marriages can make it? Do you think that old older women can make it? With Worst question wives? ever. I'll pass. I'll skip on it. Really? Can, can can celebrity marriages make can it? Can they make it? They don't ever they never make, make it. it. Right, so they can't make it. They rarely ever make it. Do you think for non-celebrities, can an older woman marry a younger guy and, and can that work? Or yeah. a guy's too visual? No, it's, it all works. Really? Yes. But you know what? It's never going to last. <laughs> it works for the time being. Yeah. And then does not continue. <laughs> sure. Even J-Lo and Mark Anthony split. I know, but you know they got tired of each other's sexiness. They needed new sexiness. They were too fucking hot. Plus, Mark Anthony's even though I, I like him, he's he's tiny. Well, you just said he's hot, which I don't. The questions. I said your, he's hot. I yeah, you know, they're hot. they're hot. I did not uh, say that. He looks like Skeletor. He does look a lot like Skeletor. Yeah. He's like an he's like a Latin Skeletor. Yeah, he's Skeletor. <laughs> Uh, Mel Gibson finalized his divorce, $850 million fortune now halved. Wow. Going to his ex-wife, Robin. It's the biggest celebrity divorce settlement ever. Beating Steven Spielberg. I'll beat it. Yeah. <laughs> One day. New goal. <laughs> you got to dream big, Dane. Another very weird marriage, Courtney Stoddard and Doug Hutchinson. Yes. Got married 16-year-old to a 52-year-old. Right. Uh, do you think it's appropriate, even though it's illegal, but then the parents okay it, so it's okay to statutory rape somebody? She's not 16. Have you seen her? Mm, no, she's not 16. She's tempting our eyes into a kitchen where she's Chris 36 might be years old. <laughs> but she's just going real low so that, like, those dummies who don't know how to, you know, accumulate the age correctly will be like, no, she's at least 24, 25. <laughs> she's 36. I hope that's true because I have fantasies about somebody that I don't want to have fantasies about. Mm. Of course, to, for, to myself legal reasons doug hutchinson okay charlie sheen huge meltdown he just became an a thing he became a a, a meme he became an uh a, a, a complete he, he redefined our culture for a few weeks there. sure he did what do you think about his public kind of bucking the system and trying to go against what hollywood's etiquette teaches you look where he came out the other end charlie sheen's back on top he's got a new tv show he's got you know success 2012 he's back with his family he's hanging out vacationing with denise richards great hair that's a good point yeah that's a good point he has no teeth but great hair yeah. both of them that's true uh, herman cain dropped out of the race mm. uh do you miss herman cain who herman cain was he the nah, uh nah, nah. oh yeah that's right isn't it how, and how just quickly mo- and just a be- sexually touched everybody that he worked for yeah and for and, and worked for that him. seemed like that was his thing that's, he, he was trying to literally touch every voter. Hands across America with Herman Cain was coming back. <laughs> Hands in your pants across the land. 
Um, Occupy Wall Street started as a single protest in downtown New York, exploded to a global movement. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the Occupy movement is going to actually continue into 2012 and get bigger, or is it going to f- fade away? Let's face it. Uh, the Occupy situations is probably 5% actual people that are protesting, and then all the homeless city, uh, homeless people <laughs> in that city that were just looking for a party. <laughs> Although Matt Damon had an interesting thing to say. He said that even though there are elements that that are unfocused, he says, look how frustrated people must even be with Obama that they're just wandering into the streets and screaming. They don't even have a focus. Imagine if they had a leader that had some balls. This is an I think he's quote. talking about the walking dead is actually what he's talking about. <laughs> there were a lot of zombie protests this year that actually mixed Tons in some of these zombie protests. protests. I know. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I mean, you discredit the movement a little bit when you also then are, have a great zombie makeup. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Kim Jong-il died. Sadly. Sadly. <laughs> Kim Jong-il died. And uh, I find that when your unstable world leaders die, going into the year that might be predicted in my encounter as the last year, it's, it's a good sign. It kind of mixes it up and gives us a lot of questions for the future. Yeah. I... I hope that Kim Jong Un, his son, you, you hope that he's fucking batshit crazy, right. so we can keep an unstable dude, or do we, do we want to get their road? Well, I'm hoping he's batshit like Willy Wonka crazy, and he'll turn North Korea into like a giant candy factory. <laughs> you know, have tours and people can come in and eat like you know missile bars and whatever else. <laughs> that might be Kim Jong Il loved water slides. Had right? 17 palaces with huge water slides built. That'd be amazing, right? If Is there video footage? There's got to be video footage of. Of him of riding? Ill, of ill, getting ill on a water slide. <laughs> oh, if that came out, dude. Listening that would be... to Beastie Boys, License to Ill. <laughs> Very apropos. Um, Justin Bieber accused of fathering a child to a 20-year-old woman when he was 17. Right, all false. All false. All made up. He was very anxious to take the DNA test. She took back her claims. Yeah. But it was a very interesting thing. Her lawyer said that once it was brought up to his attention that if it's true, she statutory raped him because he was under 18. Right. And then she disappeared because she, she disappeared. realized she screwed up. Yeah. Her yeah. lawyer her lawyer at first tried to actually say, well, even if it is rape, it's separate from the paternity. Right. He, she, she was trying to make the argument that even if I raped him, he still should give right. me monthly payments. Proving once again our judicial system is like on the money. It's yeah. just – You're allowed to cloud it with just any rampant claim. Yeah. And uh, the only shining bit of, of sun that came through at the end of this year was Scarlett Johansson nude photos released. I have not seen these. Me either. But I hear they're really hot, and I, I, I hold out hope in 2012 I will find uncensored copies online. Right. Would you look at them if you could find of them? Of course. Of course you would. Yeah, I'm a red-blooded American male. I'll exactly. look at anything nude. Yeah, I don't think it's inappropriate. I've looked little... at a fucking uh, a horse's asshole one time. <laughs> he lifted his tail up. I just took a good long look at it just to see what was going on there. What do other horses see there? What was going on there? Nothing. Just looked like a fucking dirty old vagina. Didn't do it for you? No. Interesting. Didn't do it for me? I'm asking. I don't know. You're the one that looked at it. I did look. No, you can't get mad at me. For we all look. You looked. I've never looked at a horse's asshole in my life. You have. I can tell you honestly, I have not looked. One when, time those, I did s- when those horses go by in New York City, you check out their little I have sad. Out yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when the tail sa- You're taking a little dumpy dump. Sachet is a little bit. I wish I had a tail and I could just dump walking down the street like a horse. <laughs> How does it not get on the tails? I don't understand. They're good. <laughs> They have great sphincter aim. They're good. Um, on that note, let's go into some plugs and get out of here and yep. start the new year. Uh, we can follow you on Twitter at what's your handle? At Dane Cook. At Dane Cook. Facebook uh, forward slash Dane Cook. Nice. I'm still on the MySpace. Nice. I'm kidding. I'm on the MySpace uh, still. I'm sure my page is still alive somewhere. Yeah. 
Um, and what else am I plugging? Um, Answers to Nothing is on uh, VOD and in theaters and stuff. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Glebe. Ask me questions for the show at Ben Glebe on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I'll be in Billings, Montana, January, Edmonton at the comic strip in February. And um, tonight, Wednesday the 28th, at the Hollywood Improv, the seventh annual eggnog lesson. I'm teaching the crowd how to make a proper eggnog. If you email guestlist at comedyjuice.com and mention me, you get free tickets. Once again, please check out audiblepodcast.com slash last week. Download a free audio book, your free 14-day trial. Support our sponsor, please. And last time for our guest next week, Sophia Bush will be here. If you go to crowdrise.com slash give, the number two, F cancer. For each $250 donated between this Wednesday and next Wednesday, we will ask Sophia Bush a dirty question that she will answer, an inappropriate question. And um, you can tweet those questions to me at Ben Glebe, hashtag last week on earth, fuck cancer. Um, a lot of people are worried going into 2012. Is it the last year? I believe it will not be the last year. That is my promise to all of you. It will not be the last year. It will be the last week on earth every week. So we'll talk about that again next year on last week on earth. In the meantime, Happy New Year to everybody. Dane, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Benjamin. And uh, I'll catch you all in 2012. Until last week, next week, this has been Last Week on Earth. Super. Yeah. This has been a production of Smodcast Internet Radio.